Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Friday, November 9th, 2018, starting at 5.25 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 181st episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the. Uh, this is going to be the second of our two-part series on the signs of the zodiac and the qualities and meanings of each sign. In this episode, we're going to go through um, the the second of the six, second of the twelve signs uh, from Libra through Pisces. Uh, so, hey guys, welcome back. Hey Chris. Hey Kelly. Hey. Hey. So that l- last episode went over very well. I think we did a great job and everybody really seemed to enjoy it, but also um, it was a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to, or I've been looking forward to this episode for a while now. Yeah, we had a good time and well, I mean, I think we always do, um, but it, it was very warmly received and I know there are a number of people who are waiting on the second half of the Zodiac. So <laughs> yeah, we left on kind of a cliffhanger. Uh, with doing part one early last month, and now people have had to wait a month. But I think it's been a good time for people to soak in the information, and now we can conclude with part two. Sounds good. All right, excellent. So, um, preliminary stuff before we get started. So, in in episode one seventy five, that was part one of this, where we dealt with the first six signs. You can access that by going to theastrologypodcast dot com slash episodes and scrolling down to episode one seventy five. There we did Aries through Virgo, and here we're going to do the signs in order Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. Um, Other episodes that are relevant, I mentioned that we had done a a previous episode on the significations of the seven traditional planets, or the seven visible planets, which was a deep dive into the meanings of the planets, and that was episode 64. So go back to that if you want to learn about the basic meanings of the planets. Also check out episode 67, which was with Kay Taylor that dealt with the outer planets within the context of relationships, but it was a really good introduction to the outer planets in general. And finally, episode 17 for the rationale for the significations of the houses, where I talked about the difference between the um, modern approach to the meanings of the houses and the concept of the um, like natural rulers or natural house concept versus the traditional approach to developing the meanings of the signs and the houses and how those differ, which is kind of relevant to our discussion today. Um, The other major thing that we're going to have to talk about as a preliminary thing for this episode is the difference between the traditional rulership scheme of the signs of the zodiac and the modern rulership scheme that's used by some contemporary astrologers over the past century for the signs of the zodiac. So where should we start with that? Well, I think we should probably start by saying <laughs> that that's the the, mo- the method that we all use. We do use traditional or original rulerships, and not everyone has to do that, but that's how we roll. And I think all three of us just came to that individually. Uh, I don't know. I know I did use, I was trained in modern rulerships, if you like, and then was one of the first more traditional shifts that I made in my practice. I was still actually using Placidus houses, but I very early on in my practice went to the traditional ruling planets. Once I saw the Thema Mundi and understood the symmetry in the way the, the planets were arranged around the signs in which they ruled, it was very hard for me to, to feel like I would want to interrupt or disrupt that system. Yeah. I, I also started out with the modern rulership scheme, and that was a big sticking point for me originally in, in converting to traditional 
but about four or five years into it, once I studied Hellenistic astrology and I saw the the as you said, the symmetry of the traditional rulership scheme mm. and the sort of elegance of it, I realized that allowed me to take it a little bit more seriously and to explore it more seriously than I would have previously. And then eventually I did make that transition because it did make more sense to me conceptually as well as practically. Um, what about you, Austin? Did you start modern and then go to the traditional rulership scheme or or what? Yeah, it was so long ago, I don't even remember making the shift. Um, I do remember thinking a few things. One, conceptually, it's much more, uh, yeah, conceptually as a schema, um, it's much more elegant. And then I just remember house rulers working like they were supposed to mm. when I switched. Right, because the outer planets are so slow that if you use them as house rulers, they, they're the same for a lot of people. Yeah, I just didn't. Uh, they just, I didn't get the information, like the clear information that I was supposed to be able to get from looking at um, them as house rulers. And then, um, let's see what else. There's one other thing. Uh, oh, and I also, I, I also felt like some of the signs made more sense, and what I thought about the signs using traditional rulers matched what I actually saw in practice mm. better. Um, you know, I'm. In particular with Pisces, because I was born with a couple planets in Pisces, and suddenly when it was de delineated through the lens of Jupiter rather than Neptune, things become became much more accurate. And so that was another uh, that was another piece of my my switching. And I think it's worth noting that um, uh, we all use Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Yes, we just don't use them as house rulers, as yeah. sign rulers. Yeah, which makes them house rulers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and for most of the signs, this won't matter, but we've got to address it here because, of course, when it comes to Scorpio and Aquarius and Pisces, those are the, the three signs where traditionally they were assigned to Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter as the second signs, second ruling signs for each of those. But in modern times, they, they were reassigned by some astrologers to Pluto, Uranus, and Neptune. So we'll talk about that more in depth, obviously, as we get to each sign. But I just wanted to make sure that we we mentioned it briefly here at the at the start, so that people aren't thrown off or or they don't get confused once we get to those signs. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I think that's it for preliminary stuff. Why don't we dive right into it and start with our first sign of the second half of the zodiac? So last time we got all the way up to Virgo. So that means that we're going to be starting with Libra here for the very first sign of the second half of the zodiac. Previously, our sort of conceptual model for approaching this was dealing primarily with the four qualities associated with each sign. So for Libra, that's going to be Libra is a, a masculine sign. Uh, it is, in terms of modality or quadruplicity, it's a cardinal sign. In terms of element, or triplicity, it's an air sign. And then finally, in terms of planetary ruler, Libra is, of course, ruled by Venus. So, um, are there any other preliminary statements we should make as a starting point for Libra before we jump into just significations? Do you want to throw in, you said ruled by Venus, right? And then Saturn exalted here. Right. That's a good point. Saturn has its exaltation in Libra. Yeah. Well, I, I would start. I would, of course, add or emphasize that Libra is represented by the scales or mm. a figure holding scales, and that historically it's just as often 
the scales of commerce as it is the scales of justice. Right. So Libra is the scales, and that's literally what the original term meant was scales. Yeah. And I think that there's. Like, uh, oh, go ahead, Kelly. I was just going to say, like, weighing in the marketplace. Basically. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, okay, you owe me, you know, a pound of gold for this these goats. Let's weigh it out and see that it's a pound, right? Yeah. Those would be some really expensive goats, but you don't know. <laughs> right. So, okay, Libra, uh, and that's a good point. And then Kelly, uh, so Saturn has its exaltation there. And then conversely, the sun has its fall or its depression in the sign of Libra. And this is actually important because one of the mm. few ancient authors that tries to deal with like the rationale for that is Ptolemy, who deals with it in a seasonal context in terms of the northern hemisphere and saying that the sun has its exaltation in Aries because that's when the sun passes over the vernal equinox and the days in the northern hemisphere start increasing, whereas they start decreasing and the night is seen to start to dominate and the the daytime is start to seen to recede as the days get shorter and shorter, starting at the the equinox in Libra. So at least for, for him, that was part of his rationale for the exaltation of the sun being in Aries and its fall being in Libra and Saturn have it, having its exaltation in Libra and its fall in Aries. Yeah, it's I think it's it's helpful to consider that when we think about if you like some of the characteristics of Libra that the sun is in its fall there and Mars is in detriment there because both of those planets have such sort of strong individual energy and the sign of Libra is very oriented to the other person. Um, whether it's the other person that you're negotiating with or doing the business deal with or debating the finer points of an idea or law with, or whether it's another person in a relation, per, uh, person in a relationship sense, Libra is very oriented towards that. And I think that disrupts a little bit of the natural sun or Mars kind of qualities here. Yeah. Well, right. one of the things I was, that occurred to me, actually, Chris, as you were saying that, is that both Libra and Aries begin with an equinox, right? Mm. So we have equal day and night, or as equal as it gets. And then both of those are a departure from balance. And it uh, it occurs to me that with um, the movement of the sun into Aries, that um, we're moving from uh, from uh, we're moving towards weighing the individual and the uh, and the subjective more than the social objective. And with Libra, we depart from that point of balance and begin weighing the um, the social and relatively objective um, over the individual. We're like moving. It's you know it's sort of like self other. Mm. And Libra is departing from balance to look at both all the time, and Aries is departing from balance to look at one all the time. Right. And that makes sense also in terms of the rulerships, just with Mars ruling Aries, as you're saying, Kelly, in that sense of like oneness or single-mindedness versus um, Venus ruling Libra and being diametrically opposite, and that sense of um, there being uh, you know, two-ness or, or uh, in other words, with Venus, you have that principle of like unifying things, whereas with Mars, you have that principle of sometimes either separating things or going it alone. Whereas Venus, it's more social in some sense, as you're saying, Austin. Yeah, and it's yeah, and it, what's interesting. One of the things that we didn't talk about because there are a lot of things we couldn't possibly include, but I want to bring up now is that Libra is included among a set of signs that are regarded as human signs. 
Mm. Um, and human signs are thought to be more reasonable. They, pre- you know, they don't present like a like a you know like a roaring beast or a slithering beast or you know a weird fish beast. They, you know, <laughs> they, you know, they present as you know as human and reasonable. And mm. so Libra is one of these presenting in a reasonable form signs, right? Well, you know, let's talk about what's fair, right? In a business deal or in a relationship or, or in a court of justice, there's the like, well, you make an argument and, you know, I'll listen to you and take that into consideration. And there's this, you know, there's a duality to Libra, which, I, you know, I feel like Gemini being represented by literally two twin humans um, sort of uh, gets more share of the zodiac's duality than it deserves. Libra's very is abs. It's always dual. Um, you know, you need to weigh the things relative to each other, right? Which is why you know I I often say that Venus, which rules Libra, is the fulcrum upon which those scales rest, right? Um, but um, that's a beautiful way of encapsulating it, Austin. That Venus is sort of the center of the scales. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, but- part part of that theme of um, weighing or things sometimes seems like that can manifest in a personality or sometimes in, in a literal sense in being the counterbalance, but being the counterbalance by being almost like contrarian. Oh, um, oh, 100%. I had that earmark to bring up. Yeah. I am related to someone with five planets in Libra <laughs> who is the most contrary human I've ever met. It's not mean spirited, they're just contrary. Yeah. It's almost like, because I, anyway, I know of this excessive Libra energy that you speak, and uh, it's almost like there's this desire to make sure that all points of view get expressed and discussed and aired, um, whether they're playing devil's advocate or they're just saying, let's look at it from this other perspective. The thing I found tricky when I was first learning about Libra and getting to know people with a lot of Libra is that they will express or argue for a point of view that is not necessarily their own. They're just trying to get everything out there into the situation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They they want to make sure that uh, when somebody's embodying Libra, they want to make sure that all points of view are represented, even if they don't necessarily agree with them. There's a lot of natural playing devil's advocate, like without even realizing it. Um, Yeah. Which is funny. Uh, So, in terms of things I wanted to bring up, people talk about, especially in more of a sun sign context, but it's not inappropriate once we take into account moons and risings and all that, the sort of compulsory social nature of Libra, the like, which can easily look like codependence, but it can be wanting to have somebody to dis- disagree with all the time. Um, it makes me think of um, uh, a Leonard Cohen quote. Or from a Leonard Cohen song, which is uh, "It's lonely here. There's no one left to torture," mm. and it's not. I'm not saying that Libras are sadists, but there's a like. It, it it's not that the 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 social desire that we see in Libra is only to get along. It's to like do stuff with people, and that can mm. be disagree. That, you know that there's there's plenty there. Um, people with a lot of Libra are happy to hang out with someone that they don't agree with all the time. It's not a cord, it's connection, if that makes sense. Right. That social butterfly aspect of Libra is definitely like a major theme that seems like it comes up. And sometimes the contrarian thing can be played down, though, it seems like. And instead, 
they can be like everybody's friend on on some level. Yeah, that's there, true. Yeah, there's like a diplomacy to the way they interact with others. I've always appreciated or observed that Libra has this real sense of what is appropriate from a social etiquette perspective. And they'll, you know, sort of conform a little bit to those expectations, uh, particularly in terms of how they deal with other people. Yeah, 100%. That's part of the, when I think of Libra, I think of, when I put myself in that mode, it's, you know, every situation, every situation you encounter fills the other side of that scale. And then Mm. you adjust yourself on your side so that you're balanced with whatever that is. And that's always changing. And that's part of Libra being a cardinal sign, right? It's always, it's a new beginning. Okay, we got to start, we, you know, it's start over, start afresh, right? Um, it's not, um, you know, it's not dogmatic uh, in the sense that, you know, there's the like, oh, this person's in this mood right now, I'll interact with them this way. The vibe at that party was kind of weird. So I, w- I played it like this. It's like coming up with new strategies and new ideas all the time. Yeah, I like that. Thanks for mentioning the the cardinality because a mm. lot of what we're talking about is definitely connected with it being like an air sign ruled by Venus, but that idea of it being also a cardinal sign and that notion of them starting or initiating things frequently or initiating new things is definitely like a major theme. Yeah, uh, but but then sometimes the downside is not having a lot of follow through like all cardinal signs sometimes have, but that might be more pronounced for Libra and maybe for for Aries to a lesser extent. Yeah, I think the the flaky Libra is a, a stereotype that is not entirely grounded in fiction. Sure, I mean because it's like an air sign, like Gemini is. It's not ruled by Mercury, so it doesn't have that intellectual flightiness. But instead, sometimes it's more of like a. It can be a social flightiness, but also sometimes just the desire to initiate lots of things. But sometimes just not having a harder time seeing them through to completion. Um, compared to other signs, yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's um, it, I think you mentioned like Aries. It's a young or you know active um, cardinal sign, and so that's a lot of like uh, that's a lot of uh, impetus or desire to go and do. But you know, fire and air by themselves are very insubstantial when compared to water or or earth, right? And so that's, you know, flightiness is literally a reference to air, right? Yeah. Uh, Well, I don't know. It's still up in the air. Oh, and so in terms of flightiness or not following through, we do, we absolutely have to talk about the, the, the notorious Libran decision making process. Oh, yes. Or the lack of decision making. (laughs) Why why do you say lack of decision making, Kelly? Well, I mean, they do. Then one of the qualities I think in in all the sort of even pop astrology books is that Libra is an indecisive sign, and they do seem to get stuck with having to make choices. The idea of the Mars principle of choosing one thing and sort of distancing yourself from the other. The pure energy of Libra seems to really struggle with that, and that it's the weighing of the pros and cons and the paralysis by analysis or the overthinking. If you like, yeah, right. the the ability to see both sides of the equation means there can be an indecisiveness of of choosing and finally settling on just one. Yeah, it's indecisiveness of the situation, and I think when there's another person or party involved, part of the motivation for Libra 
it can be that they don't want to upset anyone. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to put anyone else out. And sometimes the choosing or the decision-making becomes delayed because what they really want might actually upset the other person or might put the other person out a bit. And they just struggle with that. Yeah. And wanting to find um, a solution that everyone's happy with. Yes. That kind of win-win. Yeah. um, Being... um married to a woman with mercury <laughs> and the sun in libra um i have encountered this before if anybody wants to pm me i got some hot tips on how to on libra hacks um no i mean one of the things and i Kay won't mind me saying this because she knows i do this um to help her make decisions is like i'm i i don't care about a lot of things i'm pretty easygoing and so she'll be like, oh, should we do this or this? And I'm like, mm, doesn't matter to me. And I found out that that's an extremely unhelpful for her right. process. Yeah. And so sometimes I will like be like, I will just say, yeah, let's do that one. Just so she has something to bounce off of. She'll be like, no, I don't want to do that. I'll be like, great. Now we know what to do. Yeah. That's and so that's not a, a sneaky a, trick. A, a she knows I do that. <laughs> it's like a setup, setup for a joke, like a Pisces and, and a Libra try to make dinner plans. Oh my gosh, that's a complete thing I can get on board with. I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't mind. Where do you want to go? <laughs> right. The, the Libra says, where do you want to go? And the Pisces says, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it happens about four times a week. Right. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. I'll do, you know, I'll just eat a can of chili. Well, I was thinking about making this anyway, but yeah. 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 We could have a lot of jokes on this. It's great. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want to pick on Kate because I'm- no. Uh, well, yeah, it's the let's... it's the Libra vibe, and she's more than just that. Um, oh yeah, I think everyone with a little splash of Libra will relate to this, whether it's just a Libra rising or a Libra moon or something. They will understand that accommodating or compromising pattern. I think. Yeah. Right, so one of the thing I want to say something uh, nice that people don't usually say about Libras. I don't think Libras Libra gets uh, Libra. Yeah, I don't think Libras get nearly as much credit for being curious and intellectual and seeking after new ideas if you look at like if you look at the history of thinkers um you know if you just look at intellectual history you see uh libra tremendously overrepresented you know what is cardinal air it's generating yeah. new ideas why are you know why does someone with planets in libra ask other people what they think because they want to know what other people think right the and so there's part of i there's totally the intellectual Libra is 100% um, a thing that doesn't get talked about as much as, um, you know, Dr. Indecisive. That's a beautiful point. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and there's a term I'm searching for also that's kind of related, which is I think it's like social intuition or having mm. like a tre- tremendous amount of social intuition as a, as a positive um, sort of thing that's connected with that as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not just intuitive. There's usually method. Um, there's like sure there's a you know there's an ability to pick things up, but um, the the heavy Libra people that I know, and it's much more than just Kate, um, are able to process what they pick up intuitively, and they're able to think about and articulate you know why they might why they may have taken this approach when talking to this person on this day in this situation. There's you know there's that there's the that Venusian intuition, but there's also it's air, right? This isn't like water Venus. Yeah, um, and I wasn't using intuition in that like psychic sense, but more like being socially adept and able to s- respond to social cues, which we've already mentioned, but also seeing 
and perceiving like what other people are doing in a social setting and being able to adapt to that in a way that's um, unique, a little bit unique, and and kind of like a a superpower in some sense, or or could be in certain applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the cardinal. I always describe cardinal signs as being reactive and or responsive, and I think we see that with Libra in the social human interaction zone is that they it's not adapting so much, but they're they're sort of changing their strategy or their approach based on the circumstances. Yeah. Um, and so we, we this is actually our second Venus ruled sign, and we've already talked about Taurus, and a lot of the meanings of Libra can really be contrasted with that other Venus ruled sign because it's a fixed um, Earth sign. It's also a feminine sign. Uh, but the contrast, it seems like a lot of what's coming out in our discussion here is Libra being an air sign and a cardinal sign and a masculine sign, and yeah. the more intellectual and social dimension of that. As opposed to this um, earthy fixed sign of Taurus, which is Venus's other domicile. Yeah, and I think one way to make that that yin yang air earth difference really clear is Libra will go out and meet new people. Venus, you know, uh, it's active. It's like oh, or go out and find interesting stuff, or you know, new ideas or whatever. Whereas Taurus is much more drawing energy, you know, pulling in. Rather than going in search of, right, like you consolidating know. versus what's the opposite of consolidating? It's not yeah. expansion because well, it's more se- Jupiterian. Seeking but. or exploring, right. exploring. Yeah. Sure. yeah, I think, and it's yeah. I was just gonna say it's like the day night. You know, we talk about like the daily the day sign of Venus is Libra, and the night sign of Venus is Taurus, and so you get. That more yang expressive, like what do you do in the day? You go out and meet new people, but at nighttime you tend to have people that you know over friends or family. So it's it's sort of a bit of that distinction too. Yeah, definitely. With um, with Taurus being uh, Earth Venus, I think of that in terms of um, in terms of the way mass uh, bends space time in the you know physics mm. models. Where like if you just have sufficient mass, then things start sliding towards you. Uh, I feel like there's this Torian superpower of having uh, gravity, and then like yes. all the like the ice cream and the books and whatever it is that they desire starts sliding towards them. Whereas Libra is much more, you know, go 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 check it out, see what's good, see who's cool, see who's fun. You know, it's it's much more active and um, searching out as air searches out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Air will fill up and expand to like fill a room or fill whatever its sort of outlying um, border is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it maps it. All right. Um, so let's, that's a good treatment. Yeah. Where are we? Did you guys time where we started? We usually shoot for like 15 to 20 minutes for each sign. We started at, f- it was, I think you said 525 was our start time. And then you right. said some and stuff. And we did have a bit of intro. We did like a while of like, I don't know if it was 10 or 15 minutes, so we might be short. Um, We said some challenging things. I just want to make sure we get in a few more positive things about Libra as good qualities. Yeah. There's a couple of things. Thank you. You just reminded me. Um, That was a very enthusiastic. Yes, I had some positive things to say about (laughs) Libra. Um, There's two skills that I see come through with people who have a lot of Libra placements or prominent Libra placements in the chart. One is like the Venus beauty side where people ha- people with a lot of Libra can have incredibly, a really wonderful eye for what is aesthetically pleasing. 
So they might have skills in interior design, fashion design, architectural design, anything that involves kind of creating a pleasant experience in a space and little touches, whether it's a um, particular color or a shape, they just seem to do that really well. And then the second piece is more on the scales of justice side that um, they can have a real passion for fairness and for equality and for justice. So they can really, it can be one thing they struggle with when they don't meet that in other people. But I have a number of um, Libra Midhaven clients who work in the legal industry. So that real passion for creating um, equality and justice or working on behalf of justice in society can come through as well. Yeah, social justice is a great keyword for Libra that combines those two things. Yeah, so they were some of my positives. What about you guys? What do you guys think of the high happy parts of Libra? Um, I like that you mentioned aesthetics, like having a really great keen sense of aesthetics and like a, a clean artistic sense um, is definitely something that spills over into like a number of different. Mm. Um, areas like I think of even things like architectural architectural design, architecture, and the ability to not just like build like a building or a space, but to know what would be pleasing aesthetically in terms of proportions and mm. like ratios and things like that is a very very Libran thing to me. Yeah, it, that aspect of aesthetics I think belongs primarily to Libra design. Design and composition are, are very Libra signatures. In some sense, if we're looking, you know, at Venus, there's like there's Libra, there's Libra design, and then there's the Taurus choice of what actual materials and substances to build a thing out of. Right? It's like, oh, this is the design for a house, but you know, do we what what bricks do we use? What are you know, what is the the texture of the wall, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, right. and and that that same um, eye for design arrangement in symmetry, I think, is the same intelligence that we see in the social aptitude that many people um, with strong Libra uh, display, right? Because it's like, mm, what is the symmetry? What is the relationship between all of the pieces, right? Mm. Right. Or what is the missing piece? What needs mm-hmm. to be balanced in order to make this offset to to make it more balanced or more symmetrical? And one yeah. thing I would add is that even though uh, Libra as an archetype is assessing and then you know being flexible in the sense of like, oh, I'll be this or I'll take this tactic, it's still a cardinal sign. And Libras are like, usually there's in order to achieve my goal, I will do this. And I think we can contrast that with Pisces, which we'll get to later, or even Gemini, which is like, I don't know, we'll just see what we can make of this situation. Libras tend to come in like Aries and Cancer and Capricorn, like all of the cardinal signs with a like, how do I, you know, I don't, impose my will is too strong a phrase, but there's a, how do I, how do I execute this given the situation? It's not, it's not, it's not a like discover the situation and, you know, kind of for its own sake, it's a discover it to figure out how to move through it. And that goal um, as we stated, is probably not um, like a purely individual goal. Like, how do we get a restaurant that we'll all be happy with? But it's like, okay, this is the situation. In order to do this, let's do that. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Um, I'm just uh, scanning through very quickly my list of people 
in my database of of exactly time charts that have Libra rising to throw out some names. Um, I know one of them that's a famous one that I always used is the the writer and the poet T. S. Eliot, who mm. has Venus a Venus Mercury conjunction in Libra, right on the ascendant, with his son also in Libra in a day chart. With yeah, Venus and Mercury exactly or very closely conjunct the ascendant at twenty five Libra. So he's a great as as a poet and somebody that used that Mercury conjunct the ascendant, but um, conjunct Venus in Libra is a great example of of somebody who used w- uh, words and had a good eye for like um, aesthetics in terms of poetry. In terms of language, yeah, th- right. I'm so I'm just dumbstruck that you, he's one of the charts that you mentioned because when we were talking about this, I'm like, I just had an example chart of someone who was the Sun in Libra sextile Jupiter and Sag that I had pulled out for my Jupiter and Sag webinar, and he was the chart because oh, um, I think he's got Libra rising um, plus that um, the Mercury Venus is right on his ascendant, um, and of course he's won you know a Nobel Prize for his writing, um, right. So he he kind of knows what he's doing. One of my yeah. favorite um, poet Libras is uh, Clive Barker, who has a large, a weighty le- uh, stellium in Libra. And y'all probably haven't read Clive Barker, but Clive Barker um, is a famous horror writer. And his thing is that he writes in beautiful, poetic, lyrical language about the grossest and most horrible things ever. I'm so happy that you shared this with us, Austin, because there's no way in hell I would have ever known about such a thing. Well, right. so he 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 wrote and directed Hellraiser, the first Hellraiser from back in the day. Um, you know, some of his stuff has been adapted into film filmic format, but really his his genius is as a writer. Beautiful. They such uh, classic short stories as the Midnight Meat Train. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> yeah, that was. Yeah, you're not supposed to. Okay, good. So, um, yeah, do you have any more examples? Yeah, I, I got a few more examples. <laughs> uh, so, two president, two U.S. president. Or no, actually, three, and there might be more. So, John Fitzgerald, JFK, a U.S. president, uh, Libra rising, Venus and Gemini, uh, Jimmy Carter, Sun in Libra and ascendant in Libra, and. Uh, more more notable and and maybe even better example, Bill Clinton had uh, or has Libra rising with Mars and Venus and Jupiter also in the first house in Libra, and Bill Clinton, of course, was always oh, known yeah. for his ability to. It's like whether people liked him or didn't like him, it, it seemed like even the opposition always acknowledged his ability to be very like charming and especially on like a one on one level to be. Um, to have a sort of like charisma or or something that seemed almost like out of the ordinary. Yeah. Uh, among the things he was criticized for, his social intelligence was never one of them. Uh-uh. Right. No, and he's got, if I'm remembering correctly, Libra rising, Jupiter in Libra, Venus in Libra, and Neptune in Libra all yep. kind of there. He's. Uh, I had spoken to someone at one point who had been in the same room with him at some point over the years and just said, he really had that ability to focus in on you when he was talking to you so that you felt like you were important to him, if that makes sense. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, other famous Libra risings, Venus Williams, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who actually has a lot of stuff in Libra. He's, he's got a, a big Libra set, a stellium or a bunch of planets there. Yeah. Uh, so Ascendant, Pluto, Moon, Uranus, and Mercury in Libra in the first. And um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, we apparently have his, I have his birth time in my files, has Libra rising with Uranus conjunct the Ascendant. Denzel Washington, um, Harrison Ford, and one other one that may or may not be interesting, but Yoko Ono had Libra rising with Venus in Aquarius conjunct Saturn in a night chart in the fifth house. And that might be an example of the oppositional thing that we were talking about earlier, where part of her, it seemed like her whole artistic, and I'm not like a major in like art history, but it seemed like part of her artistic project was doing things that seemed almost like the opposite of what you would do to be aesthetically pleasing. But in that, she sort of found some sort of aesthetic appreciation of that. Yeah, I think that's I fair. You don't have a lot of uh, opinions of situa- the situationist movement, Chris? No, I, sorry. Uh, I wish that we did have somebody in, in here to like expand on on that point. That might be useful, but yeah. So that, that's that's all of my Libra rising examples. I think there's a few more, but we don't have to go into all of them. But I think that gives people an idea of what happens when Venus is ruling the ascendant, and you have Libra rising acting as a, and therefore that zodiacal sign acts as like a dominant um, factor or a dominant signature in the person's life as a whole and in their personality as a whole. Totally. All right. So I think then if that's good, that that concludes our first sign. You guys feel feel good about that? Yes. I think so. Oh, one, right. one more statement. Um, why is Saturn strong in Libra? Mm. Because it's agreements and contracts. It's mutually agreed upon things, right? It, the just agreement, the fair agreement holds longer than one that's inherent, that's lopsided. You know, which contradicts itself, which will inevitably be pulled apart. Sure, and maybe that idea of like law and authority and things like that as well ties into what you're talking about. Exactly. The you know, a fair authority will stay in power. An unfair authority generates enemies with every one of its actions. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. Thank you. All right, perfect. Well, let's move on to our next zodiacal sign. So after Libra, of course, comes the eighth sign uh, with, if we're starting out from Aries at the vernal equinox. So Scorpio is the eighth sign. It is a feminine sign. It is a fixed sign. It's a water sign. And traditionally, it's ruled by the planet Mars. It's the second domicile of Mars uh, besides Aries. So Scorpio, where should we Start off with Scorpio. We're actually in the middle of of like quote unquote Scorpio season right now. I think. Yes, we yeah. are. D- well, I mean, I can just make a brief point on the uh, out of planet, the modern traditional ruler. One of the things that I struggled with with the modern planets ruling was what you guys were alluding to, where you know if you have a Scorpio rising chart and you're looking to the ruling planet and you look to Pluto as the ruling planet. It moves so slowly that everyone born over like a 15 or a 16 year time frame has Pluto in the same sign. So you don't get as much individual or differentiated unique information. But if you look to Mars, of course, every six weeks, you're going to get a different style or a different iteration of the Scorpio rising. 
Um, and then the rulership of Mars in Scorpio, I found that I had a great resonance with that because I've always, I don't know, admired or watched from afar, if you like, the extreme drive and determination that Scorpio represents, which seems to be like a really focused version of Mars. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, right. you know, the Mars, sort of- Mars with stamina versus Aries. Yeah, and yeah. it's um, you know the the animal symbol is armed and armored. You know it's that's it's true. Ready for battle. Um, you know there there aren't many there aren't many other animals in the zodiac or in nature that are quite as equipped for battle as a scorpion. You know goats can ram things, or excuse me, rams can ram things. Goats can chew on things, but you know scorpions encased in armor. It's got little controllers it's got a it's literally its tail is uh solely as a weapon you know yeah. it's it's definitely a, a martial beast One yeah there's the, no cute and cuddly scorpions and that's part of the glyph actually right it's like an m almost with it with a tail with a little um spear on the on the end of it right and you have the same pokey at the end of the glyph as you do at the end of the mars glyph Mm, like nice, pokey. Like that. That's the technical term, the pokey. <laughs> that's the ancient term. <laughs> yeah, the ancient. It, the I believe that's the uh, yeah the Koine Greek term is pokey. <laughs> that's actually not uh-huh. a bad. I mean, Kentron poke the... poke. I believe it's <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> Kentron means you know for the angles or the angular houses means like spike, but that would be a good alternate term, right? Well, and there is a spike in the heart of the Scorpio makeup, if you like. Well, so I, when I think about this, um, the spike, if you will, and how to differentiate the martial quality of Mars of Scorpio from Aries and other possible positions, um, it comes back to the fixed water thing for me. So, fixed. When I think of fixed water, I think of a river. Right, because when water is fixed, it's flowing in the same direction. I think of plumbing, which takes the water on the same course every time. And of course, this is borne out in practice because when you have Scorpio, you know, when there are malefic transits and Scorpio in Scorpio, and it's connected to the fourth, a lot of times you have plumbing issues. You know, these kind of things are, are literal as well as metaphorical. And so, I always think of, uh, I always think of the Scorpion's tail as a hyperdermic, you know, which is pushing mm. the pushing the water into, you know, another body, which is exactly what it is. It is a hypodermic. Um, you know, the a, a, a snake's fangs are similar. Uh, you know, a serpent's a serpent delivers venom in the same way. Um, and that there's this like, you know, it's very fixed, it's very directed, it's very focused, it's penetrative, um, which is different than like ramming something. Right, which is external, right? If you think of when somebody gets rammed, you know, by an Aries or whatever, they might go flying and get knocked on their butt. If you get stung, you kind of crumple up, and you're like, "Oh God, something terrible has happened." You know, like it's internal rather than external, mm. which is in accord with water versus fire. Robert Zoller, when I lived with him briefly and like ten years ago, one of the it's funny, actually, one of the most profound things he ever said to me was an analogy he gave or metaphor between Aries and Scorpio, which was he said Aries is like a machine gun and Scorpio is like a sniper rifle. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. fair. Or maybe flamethrower versus <laughs> versus uh, sniper rifle. But yeah, right. that's a good one. That's 
Yeah, there's a stealth component to Scorpio. There's, I mean, they're often described as being secretive. I, I one of my um, siblings, you guys know, I'm from a big family. One of my siblings has. I'm probably this might be a bingo card. Um, I'm not sure. We've hit um, three. Already. We already did one earlier with <laughs> Austin mentioning Caitlin. Well, oh yeah, and, that's and true. Austin made a dark metaphor. That's yeah. well. That's for the first five minutes. <laughs> Everyone can bingo that. There was a bingo card that was circulated recently by Lisa. What was her last name? Adair. Ardair. 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 We're not Ardair. sure if we're pronouncing it right, but she's lovely and very clever. Yeah. Um, they're they're we'll, lovely and very clever. We'll pull it out on the forecast episode next week, but you can see it on the Astrology Podcast Twitter account, which I think is twitter.com slash astrologycast. But just yeah. bingo for things that we do too much of, I think. <laughs> totally. Um, and one of my siblings has the Scorpio moon. And I always think about the idea of the still waters run deep. And this sibling will often repeat that phrase back to me now that they've heard it. They'll often be still waters. And they're just alluding to me that there's a lot going on that they don't necessarily want to get into all the details of, but it's sort of become our code for the level of depth of perception that Scorpio has. Uh, so uh, I... I often feel a little bit like, I don't know, I want to give the Scorpio, I want to give them a big hug because I feel like, I know we often say Aquarius is, you know, or pop astrology is like Aquarius is the odd one out, they're different, etc. I always think Scorpios are a little bit misunderstood or the Scorpio energy is misunderstood because their level of perception is kind of in this place that most of us are not even aware of. I think other maybe water signs are like, there is more down here, but it's not necessarily my zone. And so I think there's this sense of, you know, feeling things that other people can dismiss or that other people are just like, oh, did that affect you? And the Scorpio person, the person with planets in Scorpio is like, yeah, it did. Um, um, they may not let you know that because, of course, their cards are close to their chest. But uh, there is that sense. And so I, I feel a lot of compassion for what they're feeling that is often overlooked by the rest of us. I think that's 100% true. Uh, I would also add that they don't just notice things that other people don't or won't notice. They go looking for them. That's true. There's definitely like a, you know, like one of them... One of the ways I, you know, I think about Scorpio is with, um, like detective, sleuth, researcher, uh, right. you know, images because they're, you know, like ooh, you know, they're like, mm, what's under that? They want to know what's under that rock. So the investigator, yes. <laughs> and I always, I always saw that as an extension of the, um, like the penetrative quality that you were talking about, Austin, in wanting to get to, so to speak, like the bottom of something, yeah. wanting to explore and go as deep as you can into something and the fixidity of of the sign adding a quality of like single-mindedness in focusing down on a, sign- on, on a single thing until you reach the, the deepest level of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're a great example of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm Scorpio, Scorpio Stellium. Yeah, you know, the other way, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you're like, I want to talk about cusps for two hours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you were like, yeah, it'll be like a 10 minute, 15 minute thing, something like that. And then two hours later, we have talked about, we've gotten to the bottom of it. Or, yeah, Hellenistic astrology. I got into Hellenistic astrology a decade ago and picked it up and then decided I wanted to learn everything I could about that subject. Well, it's, it almost feels like that's picking up the rock of where did astrology come from, which is a very Scorpio thing to kind of be like, 
what what else is under here? How far back does it go? And just to keep going, because I don't think Scorpio doesn't stop until there's nowhere else left to dig. Basically. Yeah, no, it's tunnely. Yes, very tunnely. Drill. Yeah. I think of it as uh, drilling energy. And that's yeah, the mining, plumbing kind of archetype of of going in, getting what's there, and then bringing it back out. Mm-hmm. And there's the there there's that emotional fixity which goes with that. Like you have to want to do that. Right. Like you don't like, you know, it's inconvenient to dig a 30 foot deep hole in your backyard. Right. Like you've really got to want to find out what's down there. Um, Yeah. And so I don't I grew up with a lot of heavy Scorpio people as friends um, and they just get on something and they were, you know, and that's they were good. They They were very good at following things, maybe not to the end, because a lot of times they just had to make themselves stop. Um, mm. but like there were definitely, it was definitely not, um, eh, I tried it. It was boring. No, it's like, no, I need to know. One of them was, you know, one of them was, and still is, uh, a computer, a coder. And he would just get in to like, I'm going to code for 12 hours at a time. Um, uh, Gemini moon, uh, with, uh, Stellium and Scorpio. Um, <laughs> there's also, a, there's also, I think a Scorpio, there's a very special Scorpio relationship to danger to what is dangerous, um, whether they're ideas or emotions or potentially lethal creatures. Yes. Like a fascination with how far can we go or how close can we get? Yeah. Like one of my, one of my good friends that I've known for 20 years, um, five planets in Scorpio, and he's been bitten, stung, like mauled by more wild animals than anyone I know. Like, you know, he's just, he was the kind of guy who was like, Oh, look, there's a snapping turtle. I bet he'd hate it if I picked him up. Um, he got, <laughs> Oh my God. You know, he got, uh, he got flesh eating bacteria on his face from messing with a caiman in the Amazon. What his pointer finger is like kind of gnarly and mauled. Cause he used to like to catch rattlesnakes with his hands and a big one got him. And he just calls it the rattle finger now, um, et, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, but there's- I, I'm sorry, go. But anyway, there's that like uh, interest and intensity um, that comes from dealing with, again, ideas, situations, feelings that aren't purely safe, mm. you know, wanting, you know, and it's worth whatever the risk is. And maybe some of the, some of the risk makes things a little bit more intense and more interesting. Right. Yeah. Sorry, um, Chris. And and some of that though might go back to, and this is going to get us into a side discussion about uh, core awareness of themes surrounding like death and mortality being a potential Scorpio issue. And this brings us into a problem we haven't fully dealt with yet, which is the natural houses. And while we don't, the three of us don't necessarily use that scheme to develop significations for the houses and we don't typically import significations from the houses to the zodiacal signs it's like when we get to scorpio and libra and some of those signs it's one of those instances where i feel like there is potentially still some some relevance i mean it's not that you necessarily have to associate scorpio with the 8th house in order to arrive at that it is a a, a fixed um water sign that's ruled by mars which is traditionally a malefic planet but there is some darker significations sometimes associated with Scorpio that sort of tend in that direction. And I tend to think that that things like that awareness of danger are partially due to awareness of the potential for mortality or other things like that. 
<laughs> we're both so excited. What um you you were just saying there, I thought really speaks to the emotional pain, maybe combination of Scorpio because it's a water sign, but it's the Mars water sign. It's not the water, it's not the moon water sign or the Jupiter water sign, it's the Mars one. Mm. Um because the sibling that I'm thinking of actually has four planets in Scorpio, I forgot. Um Venus, Moon, Saturn, Pluto. And this sibling had a number of friends that actually passed away in various circumstances fairly early, um, like teenage and early 20s. So there were, and in this particular sibling's chart, there's no connection to the eighth house with Scorpio. It's like maybe the third or something. Um, but there is this real, I guess, that connection to the pain, the emotions that are like more painful, if you like. So you can sort of get some of the grief and the death in that way, but also, I guess, from the destructive component of Mars traditionally being a malefic um, coming in there as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, I, you I can like get that. That's a good point. most of it with Mars. Yeah, so it feels like you could end up in the same place in Scorpio without drawing on the eighth house association. Yeah, well, that, sure. whole, that whole sign house thing, you know, it's great about half the time and it's extremely misleading and distorting the other half. But that's one of the points that I think it, it coincides pretty well. Yeah, well, it just gets abused and it gets used as a crutch so that people don't know how to do anything without it. And and that ends up being like the only conceptual model that they have when there's so much other mm. richness that they could rely on to get the, to the, the core symbolic meanings as we've shown so far. Um, but there's still something useful. Another one that was useful, and this is a whole separate conceptual issue, but we've been going through the fall um, over the past month or two here. And at this point in the Northern Hemisphere, like all of the leaves start changing colors, which is very beautiful, but then they're also dying. Like the, the trees are going through this period of like, death and decay and all the leaves fall on the ground and then eventually there's a rebirth later in the year in the in the springtime but there is some element of this part of the year in the in the northern hemisphere when we're in the middle of the fall season which scorpio coincides with where the tropical zodiac was developed in the northern hemisphere where you do get some sort of sense of that of death as like a natural cycle and while I realize that brings up all sorts of conceptual issues with the northern southern hemisphere thing and the extent to which the tropical zodiac is connected in any way to the seasons, um, it's something I have been thinking about over the past month or so. Yeah, it definitely corresponds because it is, you know, in the garden, it is a time for death and dying and composting. And so you, the symbolism is definitely there. And so there's a fascination, I guess, in Scorpio with, I was the other thing I think about Scorpio is they like to go right out to the edge, to the coal face of where life and death intersect, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Well, one thing I would add, just looking at it from a Southern Hemisphere perspective, you know, you also have with Scorpio, like you're saying with life and death, there's this, the, the fierce will to live and the fierce will to succeed in on whatever terms is absolutely that fixed water Scorpio. And, you know, on the other side of the world right now, everything, you know, all the life is pressing up after being dead. You know, you thought you killed me. Oh, no, I'm back again this year, says the flower. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, At least you got flowers in Austin. I'm so, so proud of you. <laughs> I mean, but that idea of, um, I don't know, those things of, of death, for example, is a natural cycle and sometimes seeing the beauty in that and, or seeing the beauty in something that other people would see as 
negative or, or morbid or something like that seems like it comes up. And sometimes that's why you get weird, interesting aesthetic manifestations of that with Scorpio, like like a, a goth type aesthetic or something like that, for example. Or the tattoos. Right. Scorpio tattoos are a, a funny- It's just a thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's just a weird thing. I mean, the other thing to to add something to our conversation that isn't quite on these topics about Scorpio, I always think of Scorpio as a very strategic sign that it's very good at, like it's it's playing a long game. And I do think, again, of course, this is the fixed sign of Mars. So it is that kind of endurance, like this is the marathon, not the sprint. Um, and there is that strategic, they sort of seem to understand if we do these things now, this is where we're going to end up. And I'm, I'm always quite taken by how far into the future the Scorpio mindset will often be considering and planning for. I agree 100%. I used to play, uh, one of my my friends growing up, The one of the, the you know, Stellium and Scorpio people that I hung out with, we would play um, strategy games against each other, which would sometimes take 10 hours. And what I, I what I learned was that what I had to do was that one, he was always thinking like seven steps ahead and but everything was carefully arranged. And if I could just frustrate the master plan so he couldn't do the thing he'd been planning for four or five hours, uh, he couldn't handle it emotionally and I could win. So my 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 anti Scorpio approach was always find the master plan and just disrupt it to throw the other person off balance because they've been trying so hard to make this one outcome work. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, Chris, you, do you have any thoughts on this secret insider thoughts on the strategy strategic yeah. sort of component of Scorpio? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably just a manifestation of the fixed idea and the idea or the extension of sometimes like seeing the weaknesses in something and learning from one's mistakes and therefore trying to improve in the in the long term so as to both be very aware of like other people's weaknesses or the weaknesses in other people's strategies, but also due to an intense awareness of one's own weaknesses. And the desire to want to avoid that, or maybe going back to what what you said, Kelly, maybe it's coming from the awareness of potential like emotional pain or emotional weaknesses, and therefore a, a active decision not to make the same f or have the same experiences in the in the past um, or in the future, and then projecting that forward into the future or something like that. Yeah, so it's almost like a preventative strategy, perhaps like having felt things that have been quite difficult in the past, seeing how that's come about, and then taking steps to prevent that or not ha- not be in that same situation again. Yeah, well, one one thing I would point out is that Scorpio and Cancer are the two signs whose animals are armored. The crab mm-hmm. and the scorpion are have exoskeletons; they're armored, and both of those signs. Um, you know, generate armored, careful personalities. Right. There was a tweet actually a few weeks ago that I thought was really good. Um, it was from Evie Starling at on Twitter at the Astralarium. She says, "Does the it was posed in the form of a question, but she said, does the suspicion and distrust that often comes with Scorpio placements make them better learners because they tend to question the material they're referencing rather than just accepting everything as gospel? And I thought that was an interesting point, and I had a reply about the the downside of that which is 
Um, I said, yes, but the shadow side of that tendency with Scorpio can lead to extreme paranoia bordering on delusions. Um, so manifestations like extreme conspiracy theories and things of that nature where the questioning faculty uh, malfunctions and gets out of control. Yeah, I think that's a very good balanced response. So I agree with that. So that's like a whole other aspect of this. I'm not sure if we've fully gotten into, but the <clears throat> the idea of being suspicious or distrustful in connection with that, and sometimes that being a, a positive thing of them being perceptive and on their toes, which can be useful if it's done in a it's more of a defensive posture, but useful so that somebody doesn't like pull something over on them. But on the other hand, if it's misapplied, it can sort of like go on the fritz and become extreme paranoia or or something of that nature that's unwarranted and that is just applied indiscriminately. Yeah. Well it depends. I mean, so Scorpio has a it's ruled by Mars. It has a malefic orientation. If they're out to get you then being on your toes is the right response. But if they're not out to get you, then you're just kind of being a weirdo. Um, or like, here's an example. If I offer you a piece of cake and you're like, no, you know, I don't trust you to give me cake and it's just a delicious piece of cake, then you missed out. However, if right. that cake is poison cake, then mm. your suspicions protected you. Right. Yes, I think the suspicion, it's its definitely an important piece of the Scorpio approach and it has a value, it has a place, but it you you, you do see, I mean, with Scorpio risings or people with Scorpio planets, you know, they, they have that wary, watchful observer <clears throat> where they don't rush in. They've got to assess and, and figure things out a little bit. Um, and as long as that doesn't become a preventative, like you said, Austin, where they're just declining to participate because they're so suspicious, because it can go into a paranoia, which is obviously, you know, disturbed Mars, emotion, Scorpio, and that's where we're getting right. the manifestation then, of paranoia. Then you then you end up with a cakeless life. <laughs> which we all know is horrible. <laughs> I'm not sure I could survive without cake. So I think we've been talking about Scorpio for like half an hour. Yeah, I think, I think, I think we, okay. we we went fixed water on it, right? And and yeah. last very last thing, fixed water. I often hear, and I always liked the analogy, the elemental analogy of like an ice cube. So you, what was your previous? You, an you're ice talking cube, about, an iceberg. Yeah, like an ice cube. You know, because it's water. But it, when you, you know, what is fixed water? Like, how do you stop water from moving? You freeze it. Well, you fix. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, so and my answer was that you fix its direction. Right, a river right. is—it's always—it's always going in the same direction. You know, the pipes in my house—they're always—you know—they're carrying the water in a fixed, uh, fixed manner. Otherwise, you have big problems. Like you know, and like the plumbing in your body works similarly, right? Like arteries take blood away from the heart, veins bring it back. Like they're—it's a—they're one-way streets. They're not ponds. They're not oceans. They're not springs. They're not, yeah. You know, and and that's one last thing because I know we we got stuck on this, but it's this is one of the few signs where I think the bodily parts actually become relevant in some of the interpretive stuff. So of course, Scorpio. <laughs> this will make a good. Uh, yeah, this is a the 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 body's uh, production of fixed water. Right. So, well, no, I wasn't actually talking about that, but I was just saying uh, we forgot to mention the body parts, and sometimes like. I think it's kind of weird, or I don't have a good way of accessing like what the symbolism is of why Aquarius being associated with the shins is in any way useful most of the time, at least from an interpretive standpoint. But at least with Scorpio, 
if you start with Aries as the head and work your way down the body, eventually you get to Scorpio as being associated with like the genitals. And, and that, don't then, forget the anus, Chris. Well, <laughs> the plumbing parts too. Right. It's, or as they say in the yeah, it's your, in the Hellenistic text, they say like the secret or the private parts or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's your downstairs. <laughs> yes, how you get the poop out. Yes, and the it's and the and the fixed water. <laughs> that's that's true, Austin. It on, this cannot be denied. It only flows. It's only supposed to flow in one direction. That's true. But Chris, were you going to say more on the sexual organs or the reproductive piece? I was just going to say I always thought that was the traditional way that you could get to Scorpio being associated in some sense with sex and reproduction, or at least with sex, because of the connection with the genitals through the traditional body apart part assignment scheme. Because there are some traditional astrologers who reject that Scorpio has anything to do with sex because they're trying to reject the 12-letter alphabet scheme of associating the eighth house with sex and Scorpio with Therefore, with the eighth house and with sex, but I think the body part scheme is the alternative and and still traditional method of getting there. Yeah. Any disagreement? It's, no? it's very difficult to have sex without genitals. It's I'm <laughs> I'm sure it's possible and depends on your parameters for sex, but the vast majority of sex involves genitals, and Scorpio rules the genital part of the body. It's interesting, by the way. It doesn't rule the womb, but it rules no right. That's a different thing. Well, and that's where that may be the difference between the sexual intercourse act versus fertility and conception or what have you, because the womb is more implicated on the baby making. I mean, obviously one can lead to the other, but they they are sort of two different processes and one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. Totally. Right. I like that's a really good point. Or the process of like creation and the fifth house following after the fourth house and being the continuation of one's family lineage or other things like that. Um, versus, yeah, just you know, sex for the sake of sex. Yeah. So I guess it almost sounds like we're saying that we could have sex through the fifth house in the chart because that's where we get babies, or it's where we look to for fertility and children. We could have sex through the sign of Scorpio because of the organ correspondence in the body. We can we'll get babies from Jupiter just because Jupiter has help helps with fertility. But it's interesting to see how I think it's good for people to hear that there are distinctions and that where the reason that these to- these topics are associated with these things in astrology may not be the reason they think, even though you end up at the same place with Scorpio being about sex. Yeah, there can be alternate paths of like getting to the same place. Um, but what's important is trying as much as you can to have some sort of either astronomical thing that you're drawing on and interpreting symbolically or some other conceptual sort of premise that you're using in order to derive the significations consistently across the board. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, we okay. can leave it at that if that's good. If you guys feel good about our coverage of Scorpio, we can move on to the third sign. Yes, yes. let's do this. Okay, so third sign, uh, not the third sign, it's the ninth sign overall. We and now our move third sign today. Third sign today. We now move on to Sagittarius, which is a, a masculine sign. It is a fire sign. It is a mutable in terms of its quadruplicity or modality, and it is ruled by the planet Jupiter. It's the first actually of our Jupiter ruled signs. So it is. where do we where do we start with Jupiter? We actually we've talked about Jupiter actually quite a bit recently, or Sagittarius quite a bit, because Jupiter actually just ingressed into Sagittarius and it's at like zero degrees of Sagittarius right now as we're recording this episode. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. It's also worth, yeah, it's a mutable fire sign. It's represented by, usually by a half horse, half man um, with a bow and arrow, sometimes simply by an archer. Um, but uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, one of the, so what's interesting with Jupiter is that Jupiter is Jupiter is uh, associated with bigness, right? With expansion. Um, and what I would add to that, that I think people miss a lot, is that Jupiter is inclusive by nature. It's big, you know. It's it's a, I can hug four people at once. Um, and it likes Jupiter likes coherence of all of the things within the scope of vision or the scope of the arms. And so you say, you know, Jupiter, I got I don't know. I got a horse and a guy. Which one do I pick? And Jupiter says, horse guy. You get both, right? It's both at once. Um, you know, do I, you know, do I go with the, the bestial or the human? Both at once. Um, yeah. And then we can, you know, in the bow and arrow is also, um, you know, there it, it's a two-piece thing. And then if you look at the bow and arrow as a mechanical device versus the organic centaur, you have the uh, harmonious relationship between the organic and the mechanical so that that sort of both and both and but for a purpose echoes throughout Sagittarius because you need a horse body so you can go fast in a particular direction. And, the you know, and the bow and arrow is to be able to hit precise targets. So it's traveling and hitting goals, which is, I think, a really good um, set of images for understanding what does mutable fire do? It's changing and it's traveling, but it's it's goal directed. Fire is always goal directed. It's it's expanding constantly. Yeah, and I think the movement is really key with Sag. Whether you think of wild horses running across the paddock, or the centaurs moving, or the bushfire, because I always think this is this is our one mutable fire sign. So it's different from Aries, which is cardinal fire. Um, you know, more short bursts, and it's different from Leo, which is more that sustained fire. This is the wide ranging. Um, I always think of a like an Australian bushfire, which can just go in many directions at once. Um, and because it's mutable, it does change with the wind to a certain extent. So there's an that adaptability that we might start off going in one direction, and then we're going to end up going in other directions. You know, just because we start thinking we're going to end there, we might take the scenic route. <laughs> oh, I think, yeah, I think that's the perfect natural phenomenon to parallel to mutable fire. Like that's exactly yeah. right. And and you, sorry, you said something about Jupiter. Um, it, you, well, I can't remember exactly what you said, Austin, but you made me think of the fact that the innate nature um, of Jupiter is this um, hot, moist planet. And this is the day house or day sign, if you like, of Jupiter. So we're getting a really expressive version of Jupiter here around wanting to lift up, wanting to raise energy or spirit. And that could be done in a sort of a a way where there's sort of a judgmental tone or a preachy tone, or it Mm -hmm. can be done in a way where there is an inspirational, motivation, uplifting tone. Yeah, I think for Sag, I think of uh, crusaders, I think of zealots. I also think of motivational speakers. Um, I think the capacity to inspire is very important. And I think that inspiration, you know, that passes between people is it's a, it's almost like a fiery infection. You know, it's viral in nature. Mm. Oh my God. Have you heard, have you heard the good news? Right. That's the, uh, yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's literally like proselytizing, like the, the people who come to your door and they're, have you heard the good news? The Lord Jesus Christ is risen. 
you know, like it's an attempt to spread that fire, to spread that vision of things. And so, I don't know, I, I find Sagittarius to be very polarizing depending on whether, you know, you like what they're selling. You're like, oh, that's inspiring. Or like, oh, that's so dumb. Please stop trying to convince me of it. Right. Although what matters, though, is that they're really into it and they're trying to share that with you because they view it as positive and they can help you improve your life. Like, let, let me show you this way that this thing I've discovered is going to improve your life and make it better. Yep, absolutely. And so it's positive in positive in orientation. Like, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to share this thing with you. I'm going to light your fire. Um, you know, I've, I, I, I've learned something wonderful that you don't, that you don't know yet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just, that's, um, and that's why Mercury doesn't do well in Sag. This is a big picture, not a lot of details. Well, and it's much more about like, you know, I, I, the fire is not an inherently rational element. It's a visionary element. Um, it's motivating and you know, that may or may not intersect precisely with what is logical and rational or provable. It might be true, but not provable too. Yes. That's a really beautiful point. Sure. But it's more the inspiration that counts and that's more of the motivating factor. I mean, we talked about this a lot recently. We were talking about Jupiter moving into Sag and just the idea of the underlying um energy carrying you even if there was not there's not necessarily a lot underneath it that it could just be like an idea um but the optimism pushes them forward regardless of whether or not it's like a well thought out plan necessarily yeah um i think it's more than optimism as i said back then but yeah it's not um it's not success through careful structured step by step planning it's no, it's sorry. Austin. Oh, it's just, it's, it's much, it's very, I think it maps very well onto hero quests and heroine quests, you know, mythic quests where like, you know, you're given a, a divine mission and, you know, the various, you, you get, you know, like you know, the chimera is about to eat your face, but then Athena drops a sword down or whatever, you know, it's very, uh, you know, all those quests have this very mutable nature where it's like, oh, and then this happens, and then this god stepped in, and then this god demon or goddess or whoever stepped into on the other side, and it's crazy. Just in the nick of time. Yeah, and it's always it's always changing, you know. Um, that's very. I, I think the as far as signs correspond with just the layer of reality that is the mythic. I think Sag is aimed right at the mythic, um, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of the Sag, the heavy Sag people I know are sort of you know, even if they won't admit it all the time, trying to become mythic in, in you know, trying to achieve epic level, uh, mythic level. I remember, you know, it's important to note that most of the things in the Zodiac are real, like scorpions are real, scales are real, I guess virgins are real, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But centaurs are not real. No. So they're represented by something that everybody knows is not real. But there's a certain power that comes from aiming at that which is, you know, more real than what can exist literally. Larger than life is, I think, a keyword. Yeah, yeah. I so a good friend of mine has Sag rising <clears throat> and five planets in Sag, and he t he was he told me he's like I've only been depressed once in my life, and it was when I was 13, and I didn't get any X Man powers. 
because you've been reading X-Men for like five years. And it's like when you go through puberty that you get your mutant power. And he was like legitimately depressed that when he realized he wasn't going to get any mutant powers, he talked about like literally trying with all his might to make his Wolverine claws come out of his hands. Just like, if I just will it, it'll happen. And didn't happen. Yeah, you guys are making me think of, you know, the, in the technical definition, I think Sagittarius is a bestial sign and part of it is technically feral. Um, do you guys know of what I'm speaking? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of texts are like, it's both human and bestial. Yeah, and- so I do, it's definitely got the human element. It's ruled by Jupiter, which I think is sort of the supreme kind of thinking ideas it's the sanguine planet but it does and i think the centaur is a great thing but it you know this is a sign where the primal animal vibe or instinct interacts with the human intellect and they're you know with strong sag charts or planets in placements in sag you're often being called to trust that animal instinct where it's like i can't prove this to be true i may not have the facts to back it up but there is an inst like a spidey sense or an instinct that lizard brain if you like that calls them on the quest and they can't not go yeah i i I would say that that i would agree with that um when i think about it I think of the, I, I think there are um, sort of um, pre and post rational faculties. Like there are some things which have a lot of truth value and they're not rational, but they're not like biological, like not rational yet. Um, there are certain things that can't, you know, we could almost call them like the psychic layer, um, which I would differentiate from like a medulla oblongata lizard brain layer. But there's that too. I when I think of Sedge, I think about trying to bring together the the human and the bestial, the the intuitive with the instinctive with the rational. And you know, to make that that impossible creature, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's that that movement. I mean, we talked about it symbolically in terms of fire and the centaurs and the horses, but you see this in the lives of people who have strong Sedge placements where they are in in motion more often they travel or they relocate they move around um they don't stay still whether it's because they're consciously searching for the quest or they're just restless and they want something more because they think the grass is greener elsewhere um because not everyone who's got a lot of sag planets is going to have that conscious awareness that they're on the quest or that's part of what's motivating them but they do have that desire to be moving around and experiencing things yeah it's such a like uh it's so connected with mobility and speed yeah like, I've, I've just seen that over and over and over again i would also say that a sag or somebody's got important planets in sag without a quest without like a meaningful thing that they're chasing whether it's to become something or to accomplish something um is not a happy creature sag planets like need their mission and they i, I yeah. would say that they need to let themselves be a little bit silly in the way that they think about it. Like it's okay if it's not, if it's a little bit like a, you know, like a horseman. Um, you know, it, 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 certain goals need to be, it's the, you know, aim for the stars and you'll hit the moon, right? Um, I think that, that that's important for planets and Sag to remain healthy. One, one of the archetypes of Sag that sometimes gets talked about is the idea of like the sage or like the wise man in some sense that I think might be connected with some of these things that you guys are are talking about in terms of the 
um, expansiveness and wanting to broaden one's horizons, and sometimes that resulting in being in, in encompassing a lot of things or an encompassing like a field, for example. So, like one of the like examples of like of Sagittarius energy that I always think of is Rob Hand, for example, who's often um, regarded or well regarded in our field over the past few decades as being and a very well-read astrologer who's like encompassed and studied from a very early age like large large parts of the entire field of astrology and that people would approach as a, a sort of wise man for his knowledge in many different parts of astrology and that when he speaks it would sort of like command authority in some sense as a result of that yeah, that's a really appropriate um, Sag metaphor, the idea of the sage on the stage or the teacher-preacher archetype. I always think of, of the giving or the generous nature of, of Jupiter infused through that more masculine tone of the fire sign here of wanting to put out the things that they have come to know to be true or helpful for themselves. They're not necessarily absolute truths, but they will be things that you know the person is quite passionate about or quite genuinely kind of motivated to share. Yeah, there's um projecting, right? Just like a um an arrow is projected from the bow. That makes me think of um Nietzsche, who's a philosopher who had a Sag moon. One of his I remember there's a a big chunk of one of his books that's called Maxims and Arrows, and it's just a bunch of aphorisms, but he conceived them as arrows that he was firing. Arrow, mm. you know, pithy little arrows. That's really appropriate for a Sag Boone, isn't it? Yeah. He also said one of them was uh, the formula for my happiness, a yes, a no, a straight line. Wow. Einstein was actually another Sag Moon. And for him, actually, the moon is ruling the ascendant. Yes. And there's a beautiful quote, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but you can Google it. It's on the floor, on the floor. It's in the ground outside the Science Museum in Washington, I think. And he basically says something like, um, one has a duty to truth that one must never conceal any part of what one discovers to be true. That oh, you, when great. you discover it, you got it. And his Sag moon is in the disseminating phase, if I'm remembering correctly. It rules his cancer ascendant. And yeah, it's in that disseminating phase. So it's like when you find things out that are true or knowledgeable or wisdom, you must share them. There's no point of knowing it if you hold on to it. You've got to put it back out in the world. That's perfect. That's also, um, that can be very meaningfully contrasted with the Libran approach that we mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Well, how would you contrast that? Um, I, I do not think that planets in Libra function from with the idea that if you if you think something is true, then it is your duty to tell everyone. That is sort of the right. opposite of being diplomatic and seeing where other people are at and arriving at consensus and reading a situation thoughtfully. That is a great point. Um, which then yeah. sometimes in its most extreme manifestation can become like dogmaticness or like a religious fervor. Is like we We've the zealotry. Talked, yeah, zealotry. That's a really good keyword. So we've talked about the more positive ones of the like, you know, let me tell you the good news about whatever the gospel or something, which is a more positive or benefic manifestation. <laughs> oh, that, that was but meant then, to be a, a negative example. Okay. Well, I mean, from the subjective standpoint, they're trying to save you. So I mean, yeah, but we're talking the, about being around people who are doing this. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of the more extreme versions of that, that can be the, the the religious zealotry or the person that's so convinced and so wanting to share that they're like oversharing when it's inappropriate or when it's 
off-putting to other people and it can come off as off-putting because it's almost too much or they're going too far. Yeah. It's like, I'm glad that you think that's the truth. (laughs) Because they will, I mean, I I say that it's like getting on your soapbox, basically, that, you know, the sad energy can be a little bit like, I've just got to tell you. And they, in the negative, they're just at you, talking at you on their um, whatever their what their, whatever their mission is to share at that point. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, yeah, these are all pretty good. I'm I'm just I'm glancing through my lists of like any good ones for this placement. I mean, I've mentioned this like a few times in other show, shows, but like you mentioned the mythic component of things, Austin, and it made me think of um, George R. R. Martin, who has Jupiter in Sagittarius. As like an do we have a birth time for him? We actually do. I was surprised to find that we have. He's the creator or writer of the books that the TV show Game of Thrones became and the Fire and Ice series. But we actually have a time. It's September 20th, 1948 at 9.25 p.m. in Bayonne, New Jersey. But it's 9.25 p.m. Taurus rising and he has that Jupiter. Um, oh, he's, he's totally a Taurus rising if you look at him. Well, and if you're familiar with the pace of his work. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'd actually talked about that maybe with Taurus when I was going through those signs, but he has it in the eighth house, which is kind of a curious placement, but it's Jupiter in uh, Sagittarius in the eighth. Well, I think because he kills off a lot of people and there's a lot of. I'm like, that seems to make sense given the content That's of his perfect. stories. It's a lot yeah. of exciting death. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mention um, George R. R. Martin because one of the other examples I had looked up for Jupiter and Sag, um, Hans Christian Andersen, yeah. who was this, you know, a lot of people, if you're not necessarily a book nerd, you might not know, but he was the person who wrote stories that are commonly thought of as Disney stories nowadays, but things like The Little Mermaid, The Snow Queen, even The Emperor's New Clothes and The Ugly Duckling, these kind of classic fairy tales were his creation. So he's a Sag rising with Jupiter and Sag. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that works. So that's, that's a great one. Um, and, and he also did like a, a Christmas Carol, right? Um, no, that was Dickens, I think. Yep. Oh, yeah, right. You're Dickens, of course. Which is not really- yeah. very- I, I don't think- No Jupiter there. No. <laughs> that would be like Saturn. Or, I mean, I'm not sure what Dickens' chart is, but- Yeah, for a lot of those older a- ones, we don't have times, but Hans Christian Andersen is like one of the few that we actually do have a relatively reliable time. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. Um, other things about Sag, have we uh, sort of done a well, good Well, the storyteller. Balanced- I mean, we're kind of alluding to it without actually saying it, the storyteller. Yeah, definitely the storyteller, the one that's able to tell. I mean, we've talked about that a little bit with like the mythic side of things, but part of that can be sharing like a story or sharing like a long form story. Yeah, the, um, the epic. reciting the epic you know and all of the old story almost or uh, the vast majority of the old stories are are stories of epic adventure right which are myths and there's heroes and monsters and heroines and gods and goddesses somebody that's a good example of that a contemporary example is our friend adam summer who does the exploring astrology podcast and he really recently kind of rearranged his podcast in order to do more sort of epic storytelling type type of a scenario and he has Jupiter in Sagittarius conjunct the IC um, in his chart in a day chart there you go fantastic all right um, any other things about 
um, Jup Jupiter or about Sagittarius that you guys want to mention before we move on? I mean, do we correctly balance good and negative and positive things? Do we say enough positive things and enough negative things? Just trying to. We did talk about the negative, like the 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 judgmental or the zealotry um, type of qualities. Right. Yeah, the zealotry. I mean, is that really? I mean, sometimes there can be a sort of flakiness as a mutable sign, as opposed to we see that a little bit in Gemini in being very short in terms of its things, and Sagittarius is the natural opposite because it's more big picture. But there's some side of that that can also get so caught up in the big picture that it loses track of the details, and that's kind of the short short end of that. Yeah, it's so active though and goal oriented. I would say that um Sagittarius is way less flaky than either Gemini or Pisces. I would too. And I think sure. that's the fire that gives a little bit more focus, a little bit more drive, a little bit more momentum. Um I, I do think Gemini and Pisces. Like I think Sag and Virgo are probably two of the least that they're the less flaky two of the mutables. Mm, right. Um and I like, then I like that we're gonna have to create like some rankings at the end of this because we've actually <laughs> implicitly done a pretty good job mentioning those in passing where we have like a keyword and we're like, well, if that quadruplicity, this is the most of that, this is the second, this is the least of that. We'll have to think about that at some point in the summary. Well, I'm glad that we have mentioned that as we go, because from a learning, like when you're new to astrology, this is part of how you come to understand the signs. It's yes, they're all mutable, but you know, there's only one mutable of each element. So that's sort of how are they subtly different. So th right. these are good points for people to think on, chew over. Yeah, well, I mean, that's basically what a lot of like Twitter lists and stuff are, which can initially look almost kind of flaky or something, but there's a, a core usefulness or truth to that that can still be, be very useful. Fair enough. Yeah. One thing, one final thing I was going to say about Sag, which connects to the storytelling and the mythic side and the enthusiasm is I've also, a lot of times people with planets in Sag are super fans. Like they, you know, they watch everything in the Marvel <laughs> universe. So they think Spider-Man is the greatest thing on earth, or they're a huge fan of like, you know, Peyton Manning or Ronda Rousey or, you know, whoever it is like they're, they, they also see that mythic element enacted either by others creations or, um, uh, enacted literally like in a sporting competition. They're like, yes, they're, you know, like they, they, they receive that as well as try to become that, 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 like that kind of stuff pings that in them. Yeah, Definitely. Um, I've noticed sometimes with Sag stuff with Jupiter and the benefic and the giving quality that sometimes when it's caught up with the financial sector of the chart that it can indicate um, a tendency towards being very generous or sometimes being very gift giving oriented or sometimes like showering other people with gifts as a like tangible manifestation of being tied into the financial sector of the chart, like the second and especially like the eighth houses. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's maybe one piece we haven't said a lot is the generosity side of Jupiter of Sag, sorry. And I actually see this um in other areas in the chart too. Like if someone's a Sag descended, they they may not be financially generous, but they tend to be quite generous and giving towards a partner, for instance. Mm. Whether that's like emotional support or um it's not always money, but it just that sense of encouragement or the, the giving of, you know, let me help you with that. It's not quite in the 
sort of sacrificial, maybe potentially martyry type way that Pisces does it, right. but it, it's still very, there, there's a generosity in Sag. It's like, let me give you this. It's okay. Let's just give it away or let's give it, you know, um, because we can basically, or because it's there and we can give it, we don't have to hold on to it. Right. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. All right. Um, shall we move on? Any final final thoughts, Austin, before we move on to our next sign? Nope. Okay. And I, I'm like scrolling through examples, but I don't have a lot of good. I completely skipped Scorpio rising examples, which is fine, even though I had some good ones. There's not as many great Sagittarius rising ones, so I'm going to skip that here as well. Um, oh, here's one Oprah. You know? Oh, Oprah's Sagittarius rising? I'm pretty sure she also has a Sag moon. Okay. That's great. That's a you know very good example of the thing we were just talking about in her famous, especially like last decade, that was a meme of like giving everybody gifts in the audience. Yeah, she's a late sad rising. Um yeah, so she's giving the gifts. Um and I guess she does a lot of that like promotion, you know. I'm not necessarily saying Oprah's amazing, but she has that kind of larger than life um quality to yeah, her absolutely. as well. Yeah. Right. Totally. Um, Warren Buffett's actually a Sag rising with Jupiter exalted in Cancer in the eighth house. Famous. That makes sense. Financial investor and billionaire. Yeah, there's a wonderful documentary on him. I think it's on Netflix, and he he's just like a money nerd. Like we're astrology nerds, and he's just a money nerd, and he is just so happy reading his stock things. And but he's a very conservative investor, so that makes sense with Jupiter in Cancer. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting, and it's it's opposite Saturn and Capricorn in the second, and then it's like Sag rising, Jupiter's exalted in Cancer, but then it's actually exchanging signs with the Moon, which is in Sagittarius itself in the first, or at least in the rising sign. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, good times. All right, let's move forward to Capricorn. So our next sign after Sagittarius, of course, is Capricorn, which is a, a feminine sign. It is an Earth sign. It is a cardinal sign in terms of modality. And it is the first sign that we're dealing with that is ruled by Saturn, uh, both in the modern and traditional rulership schemes. All right, so um, we've reached the final cardinal sign. Um, and yeah, I'm talking about Saturn ruled sign. Uh, this is coincides with the um, winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. Um, any other main underlying points that we need to mention about this sign? Following in our trend of uh, exaltations and detriments and falls and things. Mars is exalted here, and the Moon is in detriment. Jupiter in fall. So we've got Saturn and Mars both strong in this sign, and then the Moon and Jupiter. Um, and I think this is, of course, tied to the Northern Hemispheric season correlation. Is that in nature in in December and January in the Northern Hemisphere we don't have life, so we've got the two planets that wouldn't be associated with life, Mars and Saturn gaining strength here, and then two planets that are strongly associated in fertility and growth and gardening stuff, the Moon and Jupiter, um, having some limitations in this sign. Right. It's during the, the coldest and the darkest part of the year in the Northern Hemisphere where the days are the shortest, and it's get ruled by Saturn, which is the furthest and the slowest and the dimmest of the seven traditional visible planetary bodies. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, as soon as we, you started prepping to introduce this, I thought, oh gosh, yeah, because now we are 
you know, in the theme of Mundi, we're now opposite uh, the signs ruled by the lights. And so we are now with the planet that is furthest away from the sun and moon um, having its rulership here. Yeah, and that theme of of darkness is actually one of the the core things that Rhetorius of Egypt in the 6th or 7th century talks about in contrasting this sign, uh, Saturn's two signs, Capricorn and Aquarius, with the two signs opposite, which are Cancer and Leo, is the notion of Cancer and Leo being about either emitting light or reflecting light, and um, these two signs being more about um, this this idea of darkness. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so how does Austin, that you're strangely contrast? Quiet. What do you want to say? Oh, on this? Um, just keep going. I'll say I'll say stuff. Okay. I promise. So okay. so one of the things I've always found useful is there is a conceptual model that Robert Schmidt came up with where he was looking at the. List. So he saw in, in Rhetorius, Rhetorius has these keywords and he contrasts the planet that rules a sign with the planet that rules the opposite sign. And he went through and, and a lot of these worked out really well, where like the Venus ruled signs were about unifying and reconciling. The Mars signs, which are opposite opposite that, were about severing and separating. Um, but the the luminary signs, the idea was that Leo emits light and Aquarius. And Capricorn, the the two Saturn ruled signs, reject and exclude things. And a lot of Saturn significations, especially traditional ones, get associated with this um, sort of discriminatory tendency of the ability to say no to something. And no mm-hmm. seems like a very big Saturn keyword that can have both positive and negative manifestations. Because sometimes you need to know when to say no. You need to know when to um, turn something away. And other times it can be, you know, in a negative sense, like saying no to something prematurely or saying no to something based on, let's say, like prejudice or something like that. Yeah. And there is a there's almost a, a cautious or a conservative quality to Capricorn, particularly to the this is the night sign of Saturn. So there is more of a whether it's hesitation or just a stronger protective kind of instinct, there is definitely, I often see this with Capricorn rising charts where they're, they often, I talk to them about, you know, do you often feel that you're mislabeled as somebody who is aloof or a little bit standoffish when really there's more of a, a shyness or a reserved, you know, energy inside the person. So there is a coolness here and there is a a holding back before coming forward. I often, funnily enough, see some weird correlations between Scorpio and Capricorn, even though they're not necessarily connected um, by, you know, planets or what have you, but that sense of, of wariness for sure. And, you know, we're, we're doing things in a methodical, slow way. Um, here in Capricorn, there's that. There is a. It's the cardinal quality, so it's not like slow like Taurus, but there's definitely with the eye on the long term. Um, Capricorn is very interested in not just what we're doing today, but how that's going to set us up, or you know, or give us a problem in the future. Yeah. So a couple things. One, um, both Scorpio and Capricorn um, together have the distinction of being the two Yin signs mm. that are ruled by malefics. Yeah. Right. So they're yeah. careful because they they know that you know if you're a yin sign, you know that you can be affected, that there are potential vulnerabilities, um, and it shares that same hesitancy with the other cardinal yin sign, which is Cancer, right? Which doesn't come at things head on. Um, yeah. You know, has to sit all around the side, 
And, you know, when I think of Capricorn and the sort of basic, these fundamental qualities, you know, so it's it's a beginning of Earth, it's cardinal Earth. And so how do you how do you achieve things on a material and concrete level or, you know, how do you navigate that? I always think of first, you get to know the environment, you get to know the lay of the land first, because that's the theater of any action, successful or unsuccessful. Where should I build a house? I don't know. Let's survey the land. We don't want to just start building a house, right? Like, oh, mm, you know, looks like the soil's not good here. Looks like, you know, that river's going to flood and get us if we build here. There's a like seeing what the rules are and what the advantages and disadvantages of the different um, positions in a particular reality or world are. And so, you know, it's, it's very, it's very battlefield and it's part of why Mars is exalted there. It's like, mm, we want a position over there, right? So if they come from that angle, we have the high ground. They can't cut through that angle because there are trees blocking them, et cetera, et cetera. There's like a methodicalness to it, but it's not like the methodicalness of Virgo, but it's more in a strategic or, or like long-term sense is almost what you're describing. Yeah, it's much more whole battlefield or whole map, whereas um, I think Virgo is much more focused. You know, mm. Virgo Virgo can tell you more about the soil in that one area, but Capricorn is there's a wider viewpoint, and I agree that it's longer term because its ruler is Saturn, right? So, mm. you know, whatever the the ruler, all the planets move at different paces, and you know, Mercury is always um, doing different things, right? It's forward, backward, bright, dark, morning, evening, whereas Saturn's just kind of there, <laughs> slowly trudging <laughs> along. And so, you know, in terms of as far as positive things that Saturn does, um, building things, building, constructing things to last. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to spend 100 years building a cathedral, you need to be very or a pyramid. You need to be very thoughtful um, about where you where you start building so you don't have to, you know, oops, 40 years later. <laughs> right. I just looked at methodical and it brings up a bunch of different related keywords that are all great, like Saturn and Capricorn ones. So it says methodical done according to a systematic or established form or procedure. And it says synonyms orderly, well ordered, organized, well planned, efficient, business like, systematic, structured, logical, analytic, disciplined. So a lot of that becomes like really good kind of Saturn keywords. And I like that thing you're talking about of like building a temple because Saturn. Or Capricorn has that initiatory quality where it starts something, but because it's Saturn, mm. it's something that's planned out well ahead of time. It does initiate things, but it also has a lot of forethought in, that goes into the planning stages in initiating it. Yeah, like you need a blueprint, and yeah. just drafting good blueprints takes forever, right? You can't, you don't, you can't yes. just be like, "Dude, I feel like building a temple today." Right? It's not. <laughs> no, that's Sag winging it. He we're planning. <laughs> Yeah, or or Aries also, which is much more like cardinal, but just like off the cuff and just just starting it, initiating it for the sake of, and not necessarily having a plan going into it. Mm -hmm. Well, what you guys are saying, it's almost like expressing that combination of Mars and Saturn being um, strengthened by sign here. That Mars can and Mars and the cardinal can bring that initiative. You know, we're going to take action, but Saturn there and even the Earth element, uh, both of those things have that longer term view. So it's almost like within the one sign, we can both have 
the starting initiatory you know process but then the follow through to bring it to completion no matter how long it might take mm-hmm. totally. right the earth earth earthiness brings a, a groundedness to it that really helps to balance out the cardinality of the sign yeah yeah and so with people who have significant capricorning or significant capricorn in their charts i see um one i see a, a significant amount of master planning of like drafting blueprints for how this part of their life is going to go, whether those blueprints get executed or not. And then I also see um, uh, on the negative side, something that seems to get in the way of a lot of people who have heavy cap is uh, like a fastidious mapping out and detailing of all the reasons that they can't like all like this, Mm. a laundry list of obstacles which might be like accurate. Pessimism. Yeah. Because um, if you talk to a cat person, you know, strong cat person, they're like, well, why don't you do this? And they're like, here's the laundry list of reasons I can't. And it's not that yeah. it's all negative yeah. fantasy, but part of the lens of Capricorn shows you all of that. And because it's so, because it's earthy and solid, it's very easy to be caught in, very easy to be caught up in the spell of what hasn't worked before. Because Earth looks to the past, it looks to like what has already been done, and Saturn itself is very historical, and so you get a doubling up of those qualities in Capricorn, where sometimes people can be too stuck in the past or too stuck on what didn't work before or what might not work, so why bother? Yeah, that's a definite shadow side, especially of, of Saturn, is a, a pessimism or fear of the of what might happen or or the reasons why something might fail leading to inaction and never trying yeah 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 there's i mean there's the fear component or there's a potentially sort of um at least initially paralyzing quality um with that capricorn energy because of the saturn component just because i think saturn there there can be a well capricorn there can be a rigidity because of saturn although then there's that internal tension about wanting to move or to achieve or to to you know hit some of those targets but one of the things i always appreciate about capricorn maybe more on the positive side is the dependability and the reliability the idea that there i always think of the like a rock um, type energy of Capricorn, that sort of really solid stone and that sense of like, it's there in a crisis. You know, I, if I had a, an emergency, I'd love to call someone with a lot of planets in Capricorn. Cause I feel like they'd have this really clear plan. You know, the Cardinal can have them react a little quickly. And then we've got this sense of this is how we're going to maybe solve the problem or get through this, how to weather the storm. Yeah. My, like. so case in point, um, my brother who has the son in Capricorn just did me a gigantic favor like two days ago. Brilliant. Yeah, it no, it was yes. no questions asked. He was like, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. They just get in. It, it's, and it's, a, it's a really, um, you almost think the qualities of Capricorn are a little, um, kind of opposite because it's the cardinal but it's satin mm-hmm, right um yeah. It, yeah there is a weird duality there that they can respond very quickly in a crisis they'll, and they'll step in and get one of my besties way back in australia she's still a very dear friend now has got um some capricorn vibes in her and she's like in a crisis call her she'll be able to fix fix or solve or in the same way your brother helps you austin it's amazing well, you know, we we're talking about cold in a negative sense earlier with Capricorn, but the ability mm. to go cold is very important when when yes. it's way too hot around you. You know, when everybody's freaking yes. out, it's 
it's invaluable to be able to just, you know, do ice for, for a second. Yeah. Right. To stay cool. Although the downside is that sometimes that comes off, I guess, as we said in passing, it can be off-putting or cold, like emotionally from an external standpoint, which can be a little bit more challenging sometimes in a, in a social context. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so one of the things I want to bring up, and so we, you know, we've got the the goat as the symbol for Capricorn, and you know, you 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 definitely get some skepticism from goats, you know. Meh. Um, but there's also, uh, and this is funny because you know you have the goat as the Saturnian animal, um, but then you also, if you look at the Greek god Pan, you know, who is the a satyr, you know, half man, half goat. Um, he was also the hardest partier in the world. Um, and this is something I have seen of almost everybody I know who has multiple planets in, in Capricorn is it's very much like, you know, business during daylight hours and then, you know, goat God time uh, once the sun sets. It makes me think of like that haircut that's like business in the front, party in the yeah, back. Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, it's, uh, it's the mullet of signs. Sorry, Capricorn. <laughs> didn't want to be saying that but you know i always i i think didn't the babylonians have like a sea goat that they used for capricorn uh they had a goat yeah uh, uh, yeah and well, like I, a mystical sea goat type thing yeah i think that that would make more sense with the context of the original myth there's also in the greco-roman stuff there's there's a myth about how pan i don't know angered somebody who was running away and he jumped in a river and changed his lower body to fish to get away or hide or whatever um which might be just a um you know a greco-roman echo of an earlier myth that they inherited well one the um the greek term for uh capricorn is like this weird grammatical construction like they didn't know what to do with it when they were translating whatever the mesopotamian term one and it's like it means something like goat horned one Right, mm. right, cat, right. That makes sense. Corn is horn, and then capra is goat, I think. Yeah, in Latin. Yeah. Yeah, I guess something about the the mystical seagoaty type thing. I don't see this with everyone who has planets or placements in Capricorn, but I do occasionally see this idea of real respect or value or passion for um, ancient wisdom, like you know, pagan-based timing systems, earth or nature-based kind of philosophies, if you like. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but I always sort of linked it to the mystical sea goat. I'm like, because I always felt there's the sort of the Capricorn, but there's also this other inside very hidden bit of Capricorn that not every Capricorn planet gets to, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, I, I, I have encountered um, hippie Capricorns as a subspecies who want to like feel the earth and you know it's that going it's the same like downward earthy you know reaching um of consciousness and whatever but it's you know it's the pulling from below right and, and going yes. down below which which can turn into hippies and can turn into other things but i was associated that partially with like the rulership of saturn and saturn's association with time and with that which is old or ancient and Sometimes literally manifesting as older people, but also sometimes manifesting as like reverence for that which is old or ancient. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Or like that which takes a lot of time, which can sometimes indicate things like, you know, mastery over technique and like craftsmanship as being like a real tangible example of of a combination of those those factors. Yeah. Well, and, and Capricorn, generally speaking, Capricorn planets in a chart 
don't bloom until a person's 30s. Like whatever yes, those whatever those placements are, they they're late bloomers. Yeah. Absolutely. They they get better with time like a fine wine. Yeah, that's something that's true for Saturn in general, but especially Saturn signs and when people have heavy placements in Saturn signs that it's something that tends to get better or easier with time because initially sometimes with Saturn stuff it starts out as a um like a shortcoming or a sore spot or or a spot where there's errors or problems but then eventually the person through repetition and through pushing through it can sometimes develop mastery over that or can it can become like a surmountable difficulty and almost the like cliche what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type scenario yeah definitely I think it's again. I think that's more true of Capricorn than Aquarius because Aquarius is a little bit more forward-looking and a little bit more exploratory. Mm. Whereas, you know, Earth is the most conservative and past-oriented of the elements, and Saturn is the most conservative and past-oriented of the planets. Yeah, so we get um, like a love of vintage things or a love of things that are old or like antique furniture. Um, you know, I guess the sentimental side of what's old is a little more cancer, um, like the family mementos type thing. But there is a love of of old things or old stuff that comes in with Capricorn for well, sure. I would say time tested methods. That's a much more eloquent way of putting it. Yes, um, objects or things that have stood the test of time. Yeah, I have I have um, several friends who have Mars in Capricorn. I've met through martial arts, and they're very like well. Just learn from somebody who knows how to do it right and learn how to do it right. <laughs> yeah, because they There's know not, how to do right, it right. It's not like yeah. creative or experimental. It's like, well, no, I mean, just find somebody who knows how to do it right and then do it right. Because, do do whatever they're yeah, doing. Because that's how you do it right. <laughs> yeah. There is a real adherence to the rules with Capricorn placements. Um, and as you say, the rule, the definition of rules in Capricorn is basically what has stood the test well, of time. And uh, one of the things I would add to that is that I don't think that that means that people with Capricorn planets like want to like always enjoy following the rules, but they're like, well, if you're going to do this, that's the right way to do it. And so yeah. I don't necessarily, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the most fun way to do it, but we got to do it that way. And so I think there's a little yes. bit of a kind of a resentment of like, why don't you be more fun and flexible about this? And they're just like, well, I'm just trying to do it right. You yeah. know, it doesn't mean I like it. Yes. And then do you guys remember when we did our Planets episode, we talked about um, James Earl Jones as being like a really famous example of somebody with Capricorn rising and not just Saturn in Capricorn, but also Mercury, the moon, and the sun there as well, mm -hmm. and how he started off in his earlier early life he actually had a major stutter and he couldn't talk so he his first year of school he was supposedly like didn't talk the entire years um all the way through until he got through high school but then later eventually was able to overcome that and then of course like ironically much later in his life becomes very famous for having this this deep sort of rich very booming voice and and of course, which is most famously on display as the voice of Darth Vader in the Star Wars series. Yeah, he's perfect. Yeah, so that's like that example of sometimes um, Saturn getting better with age, or Saturn sometimes in Capricorn, especially starting off as a as a challenge or an obstacle or a block where something's being negated or said no to, but sometimes that no can be negotiated through hard work and through perseverance, which are also Saturn-type keywords or themes. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and I think his his gravitas is also Saturn Earth, right? It's like when you've taken the time to actually learn how to do it right, um, and you do that, there's a confidence in doing that. There's a confidence you have in knowing that you've built that you've built that temple or that skill stone by stone. You know where every stone was because you had to carry it. And so, you know, there's a gravitas and, um, you know, a power to people who have done things that way and learned things that way where, you know, it, 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 the, the structure is somewhat unassailable, right? It's not like loosely thrown together. Right. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and also due to making mistakes sometimes, like that's one of the things that probably also ties it into the Scorpio is just like awareness of the faults or of the potential mistakes because they've made those mistakes in the past, but they've learned from them and then grown as a result. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's part yeah. of doing things like doing it the right way means doing it the wrong way a hundred times. Right. Yeah. Although one of the funny things about Saturn stuff is sometimes um it can result in seeing the mistakes that other people are making and sometimes that can come off or it can manifest as an extreme criticalness in other people when it's projected outwards rather than inwards yeah definitely there's the seeing yeah seeing failure everywhere right or or just being really negative or pessimistic about that or critical in pointing out the fault in others but not necessarily in oneself i don't know well to be fair a lot of the people i know with a lot of cap are super hard on themselves yeah 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 i guess i don't want to emphasize that too much. I just know one of the Saturn things can sometimes it can get projected outwards and it's interesting to see that in the instances where it does because you sometimes realize that it it's also happening inwards, but it might not be as um visible if you're the subject of criticism, let's say. Sure. Yeah, I think one of the thing um Capricorn does is it's constantly kind of measuring itself against whatever the standard structure or benchmark might be. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if in society this is accepted or these are the goals, Capricorn is often very aware about how they measure up or how they might be kind of critiqued against some kind of cultural or social or even a family type yardstick. And that's where I think some of their internal self-criticism comes from um as well. 100%. Um, have you guys noticed? I mean, sometimes I don't know if you talked about this already. Where sometimes that that perception can sometimes lead to, I guess we have inaction just because they're so aware of the potential faults in something, especially if it's like a creative endeavor, that it stops them from releasing something or not wanting to to put something out until it's perfect. But then sometimes they can never reach that point because they never reach the point of feeling like it's good enough what they've done. Yeah, that's what I was saying early on about the the list of reasons not to the re, the 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 list of can't and shouldn't, right? Yes, yeah, and it's that sense of yeah, if we put this out there, how is it going to be perceived or received? And there can be that paralyzing. And I'm thinking specifically of the generation of people who would have had Saturn in Capricorn and are also Capricorn ascendants. Um, and I remember studying with some of this generation when I was taking my first classes in astrology. And they it was almost like they described there was this big boulder of whether it was a lack of self-confidence or a, a lack of, I'm not sure whether it was insecurity or internal criticism, that it was very hard for them to get over. 
um, in terms of putting their stuff or themselves out in the world. And as a result, they would often defer to safer choices that were more certain um, because they could rely on it. Mm. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Um, Have we done a good job of balancing out positive and negative stuff? We said a lot of positive, constructive, having good foresight, good planning ahead of time. We've said some negative things like being overly critical. I mean, Saturn and Virgo, to me, like are the two more critical signs as a result of that. Virgo seeing a lot of the details and things, the small details, and being able to sometimes nitpick things. But Saturn also being can sometimes be very critical in seeing the errors and things and having some similarities there. So we said some some negative things. Are we are we balanced there? I think so. Um, did we mention Jupiter having its fall there in? Or it's depression. We we sense. basically just said it at the start. I don't know that we said a lot about it. Um, other, I think I made the seasonal correlation about you know things don't grow at this time of year. Um, well, but what else would you guys want to add on well, that? I think it's pretty clear from what we've said about Capricorn that it's not a place where um, optimism or inspiration or belief will get things done, because you know the the Capricorn things require the Capricorn attitude. Right. You know, the, the Jupiter is great for Sag things. <laughs> right. But like, yes. you, again, you can't build you, you, you can't build the pyramids based on enthusiasm. Right. Like you can't do any really long yeah. thing like because enthusiasm comes and goes. Whereas, you know, with Capricorn, they're aiming you know, Capricorn planets are aiming to create and connect with and make their way through much more enduring and less forgiving structures. Right. It's hard for Jupiter's growth, optimism, expansion thing to operate in an environment that's a little bit more pessimistic and a little bit more um, conservative in some ways. Yeah. And just unforgiving. You think of like, you know, Cardinal Earth, how will you survive with your body in the world? Yeah. Like, you know, okay, we're going to throw you out in the woods. Um, I mean, you know, say your prayers and, you know, um, work whatever luck or mojo you have, but you should probably get to know the woods and what you could eat and, you know, and be fed by and what plants will kill you. You know, it's (laughs) like that earthy orientation just, um, it brings a different set of rules to play. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's good then for Capricorn. So- um, we're moving on to our final two signs finally. Our next sign, the 11th sign from starting from Aries, is Aquarius. Uh, Aquarius is a masculine sign. It is a fixed sign. It is an air sign, and it is the traditionally it's the second sign that is ruled by Saturn. So we are still doing Saturn, but now we've switched to a fixed sign instead of a cardinal sign, and we've switched to suddenly an air sign instead of a earth sign. So I'll start. So oh, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think one of the things I noticed when I switched to traditional astrology uh, and having to let go of Uranus as ruler of Aquarius is um, a lot of the things I think that modern astrologers associate with Uranus and Aquarius can be rationalized just through and it being an air sign that's fixed, a fixed air sign, and a lot of the intellectual stuff that gets wrapped up in Aquarius is sometimes just. I think it being a, a component of it being an air sign. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, um, you've probably heard me say this before because I said it on one of the podcasts before, but you know, the way that I think about Saturn ruling Aquarius and Capricorn is that Saturn is the wall and that everything that's inside the wall is Capricorn and everything that's out there in the unknown that's on the outside of the wall is Aquarius. And, you know, we have a lot of associations traditionally with Aquarius and exile and being in, you know, port cities and liminal places that can, you know, where you know, once you get out in the ocean, you're on the outside of the human world. And so some of that mm, inventiveness and exploration and discovery, that stuff that you see associated with Aquarius through Uranus, um, you can totally get by being outside the wall, right? It's you've got known and unknown. And so Aquarius is the unknown half, um, but it's discoverable, right? You can bring the means of science uh, <laughs> to bear on it. It's still Saturnian. There are rules, but there are rules to be discovered, whereas in Capricorn, I see it's much more about rules to be learned. You're like, oh, that's how my society works. And so if I want this outcome in the society, I do it this way, whereas Aquarius being active and air sign is much more discovering new stuff and also, I would say, much more interested in imagining how things could work. And it's, it's Saturnian, right? It's one of the ways that I think about, you know, Aquarian revolution is it's imagining society, it's imagining different rules for society, but it's imagining rules for everybody. It's still, it's the Saturnian imagination, uh, was it? Uh, like, I think Lenin had an Aquarius moon. And so, you know, he spent most of his life imagining rules for people. They were totally, they were well, totally different rules. And he thought they were better rules. And that was the, that was the reason to imagine them. But it was imagining a system. It wasn't imagining, you know. Um, a free for all. Yeah. It was like, well, we can get the best possible outcomes if we design this, you know, the system in this way. So. Well, and as an air sign, Aquarius is social, but because it's Saturn ruled, it's not afraid to go outside of the convention or go like against the convention. And that's what makes it sort of weird in, as a manifestation of an air sign. Yeah, that it is kind of going outside the convention. But I think, I guess it's that air, it's it's bringing in the ideas or the imagination of air. Um, and it is, I mean, the example Austin mentioned of Lennon, I mean, he has that beautiful song called Imagine, Imagine All the People uh, type of thing. And that's, I actually came to understand the sign of Aquarius better once I had the ruler of Saturn, like once I picked that up in my training. It was a real sense of, you know, because there is a, a firmness or a structure, there is a, a solidness to Aquarius that I could never quite get my head around with Uranus as the ruler. My experience of Aquarius people or people with a lot of planets in Aquarius was that they were a lot more stable than the Uranus association seemed to indicate. Um, they, they're thinking outside the box. They can be very... You know, once people with a lot of Aquarius planets have kind of made up their mind about something, they can be quite rigid about changing that. It's like these, this is the way I think. You can tell me how you think or that there could be other ways to go, but they do. we do tend to see that fixidity coming in there at that point. Yeah, that rigidity is a really good point because it's a, a fixed sign and it's a Saturn-ruled sign, so you get double the sort of themes of rigidity compared to you know, compared to Capricorn, which is just Saturn, but it's cardinal, or compared to other fixed signs like Scorpio being ruled by Mars, or this, or Leo being ruled by the Sun, or Venus ruling 
uh, Taurus, we get Aquarius, which is ruled by Saturn. Absolutely. And that's you make a really good point there, Chris, about that double kind of rigid energy between the Saturn and the fixed. Um, so there isn't a lot of give in Aquarius. There's a lot of thinking, but they're very far, they're very forward looking, if you like. Yeah. Well, and there, what I find with um, people with a lot of Aquarius is that they have like um, what people call a castle in the sky that they're building out of mm. ideas and their their map of reality yeah. and what a human being is. And they're willing to, um, they're actually very interested in taking in new information and getting confirmation of old ideas. Um, and it's being updated, but it's the same structure. Right. It's like slowly yes. being built out here, or maybe a piece gets taken down there, but it's a fixed structure. Um, I have a, a yeah. good friend who's a sun and moon Aquarius. And um, pretty much whenever we have a good hangout after there's, you know, this, some time has passed, he kind of gives me all of the updates to the Sky Castle. It's like, well, I learned, I learned right. this, and that inter intersects with all these other things that I've been working on for 20 years, and then there's this, and this is a confirmation, and then mm, I think I might need to adjust this one thing, but it's like, you know, it's an update on that process. Absolutely. And when we were talking about like the Saturn Capricorn association with winter in the Northern Hemisphere, I did think it was interesting that, you know, Saturn gets both signs basically that take us through the deepest part of the Northern winter. But as we come into the sign of Aquarius, the sun is moved right away from its solstice kind of standing point, And we're starting to get that first awareness that the days are getting longer. So it's like, it's like a slightly brighter version of Saturn, if you like. And I love, of course, the more masculine tone of Saturn here, where we're looking, as you said before, we're going out there to look for new ideas rather than in Capricorn, we want to learn what's been done before. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, um, just being a, a young sign, like, you know, air air is more mobile and literally, you know, more buoyant than yeah. Earth. It's You don't have the double heaviness of Capricorn. No. And Austin, you used the word humane or human science mm -hmm. when we were talking about Libra earlier tonight. And I think, I mean, that's a, a term that typically summarizes all the air signs and some authors say Virgo as well. Yeah, that's what I've always heard is air signs plus Virgo. Plus Virgo. Yeah. And I, I love, you know, that I, I always think of air signs with that humane quality and even Virgo coming in too. It really speaks to the human function of, of intelligence and thought and planning and reflection and um, all of those things which kind of separate us from the animals, if you like. Yeah. Um, and we see it, it kind of come into its maturity in Aquarius because this is this is the Saturn air sign. Yeah. And I also, I find Aquarius to be very paradigmatic in orientation. Um, like, let's think about the whole system of thinking, or let's think about, I think of uh, Aquarius as very, uh, uh, very anthropology-oriented, like the, the Aquarius native is sort of a natural anthropologist, where they feel outside of the culture they're in. They, they're like, mm. I've been a participant observer since I was four, um, where they're like, hmm, I think the rules, I think the rules of this society are that which I'm, I can compare to these people who live over there. And what does it mean? And then searching for universals through comparing examples. Like, what is, so what are human beings and how do they work and how does reality work? Um, but through comparing data um, uh, you know, about the humans. 
which they sometimes Car include Carl Jung is, in Carl, Carl Jung is a great example of what you're talking about right now with Aquarius mm. rising and Saturn in Aquarius. Yeah, yeah, that, that is mm. a good one. That's a great example. Being outside, kind of observing and comparing. Right. And, and also, he's talking about like creating universals all, as well. And of course, Carl Jung is famous for taking sort of Plato's theory of archetypes and updating it in a modern psychological context in modern times as a sort of explanatory mechanism for these different structures in, in the psyche and in, in behavior and in the world in general. Yeah, totally. And Carl Jung is such a good example of somebody who's got heavy, um, heavy Aquarius Leo stuff, right? Coming up with like an inspiring spiritual universal system versus Freud, who was heavy Scorpio Taurus. And he's like, no, nah, it's all sex. You know, right. it's all it's all sex and biological needs. And, you know, um, that's the, the Scorpio Taurus, like looking down and then the the active fixed signs, Leo and Aquarius, looking up. Right. And, yeah. And Freud was actually one that I brought up, but I didn't mention, I believe, with Scorpio rising. For Scorpio. I, yeah. Yeah. Good times. All right. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. With Aquarius, I wanted to mention with Aquarius that you have to be really careful, like new students of astrology, you have to be careful with Aquarius because a lot of modern interpretations over the past century have been really influenced by the New Age movement. And so it became something where a lot of presumptions yeah. were being formed about Aquarius before the astrology. It was like something separate was happening where in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was this new idea that came about that we're on the, the cusp of a new golden age where you know it was a great period of enlightenment and some very positive, we were about to move into a new long era of peace and prosperity. And that was like a, 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 a almost like a religious or a philosophical notion, and because they believed that that was about to happen and that it was a good thing, they started taking some of those positive sort of religious ideas and then projecting it onto Aquarius of what they wanted the the upcoming like new age of Aquarius to look like, and that ended up influencing and then altering the interpretation of the signs so that a lot of the interpretations of Aquarius. It, you know, after that period in the 20th century, became much different than if you look at interpretations of Aquarius from prior to that time, where they were more about it being like a a, a Saturn ruled fixed air sign, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely true. I w I will say though that there is something about the Aquarian vision which is both utopian and dystopian. Which mm. is the like, oh, it could be so much better if we just did it like this, but we're doing it so stupid right now. Like the present as dystopia and uh, a future which has never quite arrived as the utopia. But there's this contrast between the real and the ideal or the, the current reality and the possible that seems very core to the Aquarian uh, perspective. And also to the Aquarian heart that that's like, it, there's a little bit of a like, oh, but it could be better. Oh, but it's like this. Oh, but it could be better. I mean, I think that's a, an outgrowth of that thing I was talking about with Capricorn and the Saturnian um, criticalness, the ability to be very critical of things being projected mm. in like a societal context of being critical of like societal structures and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's just that I don't think Capricorn has the same 
uh, insistence on imagining a totally different alternative. And so you don't, it's right. not, it's more like the pain of dealing with this in Capricorn. Whereas with in Aquarius, it's more the pain of spending so much time seeing, thinking how it could be better, you know, and it could be different, but it's not. Yeah. The, the tangible reality of the, the earth sign versus the more abstract airiness of, of Aquarius. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think too that this is almost striking me as one of those signs where you can sort of see how a little bit of the alphabet connection of Aquarius to the 11th house might cross over a little bit from the social collective or humanitarian focus, if you like, mm. which is so present in what you guys are discussing around Aquarius and how it kind of wants to move everyone towards this sort of utopian ideal. And we're going to fall short because we don't live in utopia. We live in the human kind of fallen world, if you like. But it's that striving or that sense of of holding the idea of what it could be like, and at least maybe trying to move closer towards it. Yeah, definitely. yeah. There, there's definitely there's definitely a more collective, universalizing thought process with Aquarius. I don't necessarily. There are a lot of things in the eleventh that are very non-Aquarian and non-Saturnian. I, yeah, like none of none of absolutely. that's very fun. Mostly in the eleventh house, I go hang out with my friends. Right. Yeah. And that like that's social. I guess it's collective and that we collect, but it that's that, you know, that that's a non hit. But yeah, just the the wider orientation, um, I think uh, is a shared uh characteristic. Yeah, the collective piece. I mean, there's I I didn't want it to seem like the eleventh and Aquarius were exactly the same thing, but they're in the same way, like Scorpio and eighth are not the same thing. Um, but you can see how you might end up with a couple of those pieces. Yeah. 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 I, I think I, Scorpio I and Eighth, point. I would say, is a slightly better match. Which is not to say I don't think there's any relationship between Aquarius and Eleventh. But if I had to rank those, I'd probably rank Scorpio eighth higher. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um so yeah. other Aquarius stuff. I'm trying to like look through my list of both um, well, Aquarius rising. Go ahead. Oh, it's just you know, just in addressing the like uh, the quirkiness of Aquarius or the offbeatness or whatever. You know, it takes mm-hmm. it takes fixed air. It takes you know, it takes fixity to be different when there is plenty of pressure to be the same. Yes. You know, like. If you're going right. to try as, uh, as a, I don't know, I was going to say former weird kid, but I don't think it's former. Um, <laughs> but as a weird kid, you know, that, that, that takes work, you know? <laughs> well, actually I was going to say we can probably all relate. Cause I think we each have a personal planet in Aquarius. We do. Yes. What, what do you have there again, Kelly? I've got Mars. Okay. Right. Chris, you have. The moon. Yeah, I'm Aquarius rising with moon and Aquarius. As well. And Austin, your Venus is mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And it's the weirdness, but I totally agree with you what you've just said. I, I don't know that I ever quite thought about it that way, but you do have to be fairly uh, certain of your self or your conviction or your point of view to hold to it when everyone else will try and make you be just like that. Yeah, you gotta you gotta be a little stubborn and a little arrogant to be like, nope, the music everybody else is listening to is stupid. I know what the good I know <laughs> what the good music is. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's giving me great insight there. Totally. And there because there is an absolute stubborn stubborn resistance in Aquarius, I find. Um and it's it's funny. Yeah, it's but, kind of it's yeah. there's a funny aloofness. There's like this, there's this particular flavor of Aquarian dismissal 
where they're like, yeah, but mm-hmm. you're just like, because I, you know, I can feel that in myself and I've seen it outside myself where they're just like, no, I don't need to think about that. That's stupid. And it's not like a vitriolic, like that's stupid and should be destroyed. It's like, mm, that's not worth taking into consideration. I'm going to continue doing yeah. things the way I was, or I'm going to continue, you know, along my, not necessarily merry, but my, my weirding way. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, I like that. I'm trying to think of where to go from here. I'm a little lost for for words because I think we've been, we've been at this for a little while. Um, we have. Um, what else about Aquarius? So have we done enough like po- things, positive negative I mean, things? Well, that we haven't actually touched on one of the most common things that people read about with Aquarius, which is the the kind of detachment or the coolness or the aloofness. Have we talked about that yet? No, we have a little bit, but I have an example of that because Patrick always cited it back when we were doing the political astrology blog, but. Um, Obama uh, has Aquarius rising mm-hmm. with Jupiter in Aquarius and Saturn in Capricorn, and one of the key word, or one of the like things that they, one of his his nicknames was like no drama Obama, mm-hmm. and having this sort of coolness or like aloofness as, that was something that worked for him in, in a way, mm. like an unflustered kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's and that's that same sort of yeah. I'm not going to engage with that. Yeah. It's coming from the same place, Austin. You're totally right. But it is, there's a- there, That can also be like, a, your feelings aren't real. We don't need to take that into account. That's, yeah, it's it's not always feels, feels, doesn't always feel good on the receiver's no, it's end. It's not always right either, like. but- No, it's not. Um, yeah. So what else do you want to say about Aquarius, if anything? Um, yeah. I think it's hilarious that this is the one sign we're now like, none of us have anything to say. Right. Um. Other things. I mean, we've talked about social. I mean, there's like the mad scientist um, aspect of it, which we touched on, like sort of a little bit indirectly. I, I think, but sometimes it's funny. I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about how a really crucial um, satisfaction for Aquarius uh, planets is to intersect with the unknown and to science that into the known. Like, mm-hmm. like the like they like not knowing everything yet, but they like converting unknowns into knowns, like that discovery and then understanding and adding that to the, to the, the science project of the known. Uh, speak, or an example of that is actually Carl Sagan, who had Saturn in Aquarius in the 10th house, and that was like the ruler of his 10th and also the ruler of the 9th. And he, of course, became a famous astronomer and science promoter and everything else. Yeah, that is a good example. That's a really good one. Um, uh, although the, the opposite oh. end of that that I also have in my files is um, there is a, a famous skeptic who I believe also had Saturn in Aquarius, and I'm trying to find him really quickly. I just had it, and then I lost it. You guys say something. Um, I was going to say something about the odd one out black sheep experience for planets in Aquarius, Mm -hmm. that when talking with clients about this, there's often, particularly if there is a personal planet, and I'm not necessarily saying that any of us have specifically had this, but it's something I do associate, um, is the idea of feeling like you don't belong in your family or your community, that idea of being aware of your differences and Austin, we kind of alluded to this earlier around how you've got to be quite strong, like the fixed air to hold to that. But there's often a real awareness that you are, whether it's on the outside looking in or you just, you do feel that disconnect that, you know, one of these things is not like the others. And that's often the Aquarius kind of approach 
or, or take or That's perspective. interesting. One of the things I've seen in my client in clients' charts who had like an immigrant experience, like they were four and were try and didn't speak the same language as the people around them, um, is uh, very often there would be Aquarius stelliums describing mm. that that um, that being an outsider in a very literal, obvious way. Yes, yeah. And sometimes it's as obvious as that and others it's sort of just like I'm not like my siblings or my parents or we we, we don't see things eye to eye. We see things differently, yeah. um, which is the, the utopian take. Did you find your example, Chris? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not a great example. It's Michael Shermer who is the publisher of like a famous skeptic magazine, but he has Aquarius rising with Saturn in Scorpio in the 10th house. And so he ends up um, manifesting some of that Saturn and some of the skepticism, and the, but also the intellectualism of the Aquarius through the the other side of Scorpio that we were talking about, which is the the distrustfulness that turns into more like skepticism or questioning, like you know, is that valid? Is that true? Uh, in in an interesting way, and applying it in a science science context. That's really funny. That's so. He's your evil doppelganger, Chris. I yeah. was going to say. I wonder why that example appealed, Chris. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm always interested. I'm interested in that, you know, because it is my, like you said, my my doppelganger who, with Aquarius rising and Saturn in Scorpio in the tenth whole sign house. But also sometimes just looking at the charts of other skeptics, if we have a birth time, is sometimes useful and, and illustrative in different ways. Absolutely. Totally. Well, you know, and again, the uh, w- with Aquarius, there is a fixed preoccupation with what is true. Which can sure. look like being a skeptic, yeah. or it can look like being an astrologer, or it could look like being a lot of different things. Right. It's like you get this the idea of that objective notion of like measurement from Saturn, but it's being applied intellectually through the air sign. And so you get like the market of ideas and measuring measuring up ideas and trying to figure out what is true, what is correct and what is not. Yeah. Or to to say very explicitly what is not true versus what is. Yeah, and so it's worth noting, this is the last air sign, um, that uh, Aquarius isn't necessarily less verbal than the other air signs, but it is less um, interested in dialogue than Libra or or Gemini. Aquarius is like, <laughs> I, can, less- I can explain this to you, or hmm, I would like to read your paper on this, or could you explain... Your hypothesis, but it's it's got that you know cold Saturnian sciency feel to it. It's much less it's yes. much less banter than Gemini and Libra, but it's still it's less, less chatty. Yeah, it's still interested in ideas. Yes, well, and, and one thing I don't know that we've touched on that might be worth a quick mention is the image of Aquarius, which is the water bearer, if you like, pouring out the waters of reason. And it's often something that confuses people thinking, oh, is an Aquarius a water sign? You know, when they're new to astrology, it's some, it's one of those things you have to perhaps, um, you know, clarify for people. But I think that's part of what you're speaking to there, Austin, that there's less dialogue because Aquarius, I always think that symbol is like Aquarius is trying to put out into the world something that they think is the water of reason. They've come up with an idea or they've got this logical take or this rational point of view, and they're trying to put it out into the world in some capacity. Yeah, that works. That makes sense. I also think, um, oh, actually, I, 
I just lost my thought. We have been talking for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's not a water sign. It's bear. It's the bearer of the water. It, it, it carries oh, or transmits I, the water in some way, but it's not a water sign itself. Yeah. It's an air sign. So here's the yeah. mnemonic for everybody who's new. Clouds are fixed air. They are vapor that pour water down onto the earth, but they are, they are vaporous. They're, you know, they're not liquid. They are gaseous. They're up in the sky and then they get rid of their water. When the water, when the water molecules can de- become too dense and then it rains. Right. Aquarius is like, we don't need all this emotion. Let's pour it down on earth. Yeah. We're trying to maintain our lofty perspective. Right. But a cloud is a water bearer, literally. And it's, it it's is, it is a water up lit- in the sky. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, you know, the, the um, air signs have the qualities of heat and moisture in them. They, they have, um, and that's part of, I think, how they get their connective qualities is from that moisture mm-hmm. uh, because that's what wetness does is it brings together. So quick side note, um, my double Aquarius friend just texted me for the first time in several days. Love it. We're invoking <laughs> we, we it. We summoned him. <gasps> that's fantastic. All right. Um, I think that brings us about then, unless there's anything else to say to the end of Aquarius. Are you guys good? Did we say enough positive things, enough negative things? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm like, the Aquariuses are going to make up their own mind yeah. anyway. <laughs> that was my like, first well, thought. They were correct when they said about this, but mm, I, you know. I'm not sure about the you rest. Know, when you look at it from, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, that then, uh, we need some sort of drum roll, but it brings us to our final, our final sign, which is Pisces, the 12th sign of the Zodiac when starting from Aries. Uh, Pisces is a feminine sign. It is a mutable sign. It is a water sign, and it is traditionally ruled by the planet Jupiter. Woohoo! So, we do like a Pisces, Pisces. Dang sign here. Does that does that work? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to get m- much into this, much insight into this sign, due to the lack of of anyone with those placements on this episode. That's true. I don't know if anybody, if anyone of us knows what Pisces. I don't even is know like Pisces. Inside. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I was like, I was going to be tongue in cheek, like, well, it's the most wonderful sign of all, clearly. Right, clearly. But I was like, actually, there's a there's a fact, an astro factoid that backs this up. <laughs> Not necessarily, but we've got both of benefics in some lovely uh, condition here. We've got Jupiter ruling and Venus exalted in Pisces. So there's definitely the a lot of the Sag themes, but kind of directed into a different format to the emotional realm or the intuitive realm or the healing realms that is very much a sign about connection because of the water and because of Venus, I think. Yeah. Pisces yeah, is that, like Sag with emotional intelligence. <laughs> that's that's great. That's good. That's a good good one. A really but good with summary. a much poorer work ethic. Way poorer work ethic. And And I think probably less ability to focus too, because I think the Pisces does get a bit more scattered. Yeah, well, and you know- Yeah, and let's talk about that because that's actually, it's like a lot of that comes out of the fact that it's it's a mutable sign, which we've already said is kind of diffuse, and then it's it's a water sign. And of course, water doesn't keep its form. If you just place water like on a floor, it just spreads out until it hits a boundary. And if if it never does, it just keeps going. So it's like yeah. you get both of those things, which are similar qualities, all condensed into this sign. Yeah, I also think when I think of water changing, right, water m- mutating, mm. I also think of the process of evaporation. Sometimes I also think mm-hmm. of um, 
rivers returning to the ocean. Um, but there's definitely a, a diffusion, beautiful. right? And when water evaporates, it gets bigger. And obviously, when when water from a river um, goes back to the ocean, it you know joins a much larger mass. And so we have the Jupiterian themes of an expansion of scope. Um, but it's an, it's such an expansion that um, things can become confusing or get lost, right? Which is why Mercury yeah. um, has a very tough time in 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 Pisces. The toughest of all its yes. times. Right. So Mercury has its fall or its depression in Pisces, whereas it's exalted and has its domicile in Virgo. Yeah, it's it's the double detriment um, fall combo in Pisces. So it, it exalts or it does its best on some level when it has the, the groundedness of Virgo of that earth sign, um, which is still a mutable sign, but it's a tangible, more sort of like concrete or stable earth sign. But in Pisces where it's mutable and it's water and it's diffused, it has a little bit more problems. Yeah, that grant, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say the dryness of Virgo is just much more comfortable, familiar, and compatible compatible for Mercury. Whereas, you know, in Pisces, there's so much about the connection and the togetherness and the feeling that Mercury's like, I don't know what to do with right. this. Right. Well, if you think of typical mercurial tasks like counting, um, it's difficult, but you can you can count the no, the number of grains of sand in a dune. You cannot count the number of drops of water in an ocean. Even mm. you know drops don't have a uniform size. <laughs> no, and they they right. disappear well, as soon as you put them with the other drops. You're like, well, I put thirty drops in there. There should be thirty discrete drops. Nope, it's just one uh, volume of liquid now. Well, in Virgo, it's like it has. There's an easier time counting discrete quantities and breaking things up into discrete principles whereas with Pisces it would be more wanting to look at the the qualitative significance of each one like what is the meaning of each of these things not looking at it as like a discrete quantity that's a really great distinction because I do think in in Pisces there's a real sense of yeah what is not so much of how many are there but what does it mean that there are as many you know that there's a group of this size basically rather than the specific individuals right um and that's what Mercury must do. Well, any planet in Pisces is trying to find that, um, like a felt sense towards the the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. If that's not too abstract to say, <laughs> no, I think that's good because it ties back where we we've tended to treat the water signs as more emotional or, or dealing with emotional things more. I think relatively consistently so far here, and I think that tracks with also. Maybe switching that out and, and talking about like qualitative things rather than quantitative things as being more relevant here in terms of this sign. Yeah. Well, so one of my go-to teaching metaphors for the Jupiter ruled signs is for Sagittarius, I have the the preacher, the proselytizer, the this is the way. And then for Pisces, I have the the confessor, the person who listens mm. to other people's experience and tries to extract meaning or pattern and meaning from it. And they're both Jupiterian, but one is obviously yin in that it's taking in. One is projective or radiant. And that's a really good distinction that we are dealing with Jupiter, but a receptive style of Jupiter here rather than 
an expressive style of Jupiter. Yeah, I, I see it with a lot of, um, you know, strangely enough, there are a lot of Pisces planets when you start looking at the charts of artists and writers, especially poets, right? Because there's drinking in, trying to drink it all in and say, okay, so all of this is experience. It's one thing, um, but then trying to make sense of, find patterns, um, you know, find redemptive meaning or whatever in in the big drink. You know, it's it's a big scope of drinking in, um, and so you know, Pisces can uh, planets with Pisces in Pisces can sometimes take on too much or take in too much, um, rather mm -hmm. than Sag planets, which might project out too much. Yes, and I think that's a really great point because Pisces planets, Pisces placements can really struggle with overwhelm. And I think people often think, oh, well, that's a Neptune thing. But as we've described, it's like this diffuse water that if you get it kind of moving out in so many directions, it can't keep track of itself, if you like. Um, and that's a great way of what you described there, Austin. It, it takes in too much and then it has to kind of, um, you know, I call it the Pisces vanishing where it kind of just isn't there for a while while it's recalibrating and then it can, then it can be ready to receive again. Yeah, that makes sense. Pisces vanishing makes sense to me too. So, I mean, so the the symbol is really interesting because, well, one, it's odd, right? It's two fish chained together at the mouth, often envisioned looking a lot like the um, the Chinese Tai Chi symbol or the, the yin yang as it's popularly known. And, you know, Pisces being mutable is also a dual bodied sign, just like Gemini or Sagittarius or Virgo. And the two bodies, the difference is the two bodies in Pisces are contradictory, right? They're two fish swimming in opposite directions. Whereas, you know, the, the centaur is, you know, two bodies squished together and they're, they're going to go run around and shoot stuff together. Like that works. Yeah, they're moving as one. Whereas, you know, with the, the symbol for Pisces is basically an internal contradiction. And um, as far as... I've experienced myself and other people with lots of planets in Pisces. Pisces are very good, or one, suffer from trying to figure out self-contradiction. If all of these things are one, how if I am me and me is one, then how can there be so many contradictory elements? But through that orientation, people with a lot of Pisces are also good at listening to, accepting, and understanding uh, contradictions within others and within, you know, systems mm. in the world. Yeah. yeah, that's an absolutely accurate point. They can sort of hold, if you like, the tension of opposites because of these two fish swimming in different directions, that we can have this and that at the same time, that these two things are not exclusionary. Yeah, and we might not understand um, how both those things work together, but we, we start by accepting that both of these things are real. And you, we make space for it first and then try to figure it out. Yeah. And that really speaks to the the faith of Jupiter. Like, And I think Jupiter has maybe, or, you know, slightly more trusting or we, we are taking it on faith in Pisces and how Mercury just doesn't do well here because we're not necessarily looking for proof. We don't need evidence or data. We, we're going to start from that place of acceptance. Um, and that, I think, is almost a very specific Piscean thing. Yeah, that, no, I like that because that then leads over to a bunch of other qualities, like um, which can be positive, sometimes like taking people for their word. Um, but then sometimes that can lead to 
negative things sometimes, like like gullibility, is one hundred percent. I will, and I mean, we've we've alluded to this, but I would say I'm one of the most gullible people in the world. My husband can tell me almost anything. I'll be like, oh my god, wow! And I've like we've been together long enough now that I'm like. I think you're shitting me. But in the first few years of our relationship, I'd be like, I would just believe it. And I do think that that's the problem of accepting things on faith is that you're taking things on blind faith that maybe you shouldn't be. You should actually question or um, be a little bit more discerning. And that's where that Piscean quality of being taken advantage of um, or giving out more than one gets back um, can come into play. Maybe it's an almost like an extension of the affirming or the saying yes of Jupiter is that sometimes it's like saying yes to everything or saying yes to um, too many things and it doesn't have that discriminating quality of Saturn. So like Pisces is like if you removed all of the sort of discrimination or the discrimination qualities that come from Saturn and instead all you have is the saying yes to things and the enveloping of things of a water sign. Yeah, kind of, but it's not um... – what I get from Pisces people is not um, a uh, that that sort of um, yes to it's yes to everything, but it's yes to contradictory things. Like somebody tells you, "Okay, the world was created in seven days." You're like, mm, that's an interesting story. And then somebody else tells you yeah. that dinosaurs are sixty-five million years old, and you're like, "Okay, that's interesting." But there's not a this is the one truth. When people talk about belief, there's an investment like in that this story is right and that the other stories are wrong. And I don't get that with Pisces. It's like, okay, probably that too. We'll see. I'll think about it. Um, and the Pisces are good good at sometimes to their detriment absorbing contradictions, but they don't do the like I've, you know, I, it, it, like with Sag, they're looking for the one thing. That they can, you know, they can live on and and act in accordance with. Whereas, you know, Pisces are like, yeah, that's great. You know, all we do is tell stories about reality. Some stories are better and more functional than others. You can tell me your story. I'm not going to shit on that. I'm interested. I like that keyword yeah, you used of absorbing because I think Kelly, you had already used something like that, but it's a good keyword for Pisces is absorbing. Absorbing. I think Austin had used receiving earlier. Okay. Um, yeah, that that I think when Austin was talking about the confessor, mm-hmm. the idea of, of taking in, um, yeah, which is it's I think that's really relevant. Um, but I think the the accepting there is a trusting, um, like a I think there's a willingness to move forward from you know where they are um, or where people you know, meeting people with where they're at essentially. Yeah. Well, that's you know uh, mutable water like adapting to the situation emotionally. Yeah, and adapting in a way that's going to create or enhance connection, given it's water and it's the exaltation of Venus. Yeah, I, I find you know with the um, the fish, the fish's resemblance to the yin yang. I, I think with Pisces, there's mm-hmm. an a, there's like a, an attempt to always try to move towards a state where 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 the opposites are reconciled and in balance, like <clears throat> socially and emotionally, but also with like the state of the world. It's like, well, these things are true and these things are true. How do I get these to to balance out? And there's a there's an interesting kind of there's an interesting relationship to the Libran balance. It's a totally different type mm. of balance. It's a different method of obtaining balance or reconciliation. I guess that's a different like Libra isn't necessarily reconciliation, whereas Pisces wants 
wants it to all be one. It's ju- primarily Jupiterian, um, but there's a, a trying to move a discordant experience or world into a state of harmony. I like that. That's great. Such a beautiful point. Um, I was looking up like synonyms for absorb, and there were things that were interesting, like incorporate, assimilate, integrate. Um, it has appropriate, but that's not. I don't know if that's a great <laughs> let's, one. But let's, subsume let's leave off the list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, subsume and include were also ones, which I think is interesting when you start going into the subsume direction. Because if you were to talk about like like a subsume, we talked about Virgo as being helpful and playing a support role. But there's something about Pisces um, and the like subsuming of the ego that sometimes like comes up. It seems like as a, as a common theme in discussions about Pisces. Yeah, I think it speaks to some of the things that often get said around the the surrender or the sacrifice, the personal sacrifice or the self sacrificing tone um, that can come through. You know, from this sort of idea of wanting to maybe support the other person and not going about it in such a practical way, which is what Virgo might do. Like he's sort of a tangible thing, um, but it's almost like trying to absorb whatever the problem mm-hmm. might be, if that makes sense, but getting lost in the process or potentially doing some energetic or emotional damage to yeah, themselves. Or, yeah, right. there's a lot of, I think, um, a lot of Pisces people out there who try to digest things for other people. Yeah. Right, or the the other direction is the like, and when it gets manifested negatively, can sometimes be like the martyr type complex. Right. Well, it's I think Completely. it's people doing too much of that, and then resenting other people, uh, resenting the people that they're you know doing that emotional labor for. Hmm. Yeah, which is it sort of speaks to the fact that with water and with Jupiter and with Venus here, we don't have a lot of in inherent or intrinsic limitations or boundaries. And so that's one of the things that when you're working with someone with a lot of planets in Pisces and they're expressing frustration or they're feeling taken advantage of, it often comes back to their instinct to have stepped to to step in and want to help um, at personal cost or in a way where the other person actually might not want the help or might not be ready to receive what they're trying to give. Yeah. Sure. Lacking of boundaries is a good good keyword. Yeah, Austin has his thinking. I'm just thinking. Yeah, um, I think like that's true, but also a lot of people with Pisces placements, they're not um, are half hidden inside themselves a lot of the time. Like they're you're only seeing one fish, and it's not like the strategic Mm -hmm. Gemini, like you know, turning the right face to uh, to the social world. Um, There's sort of a like. I think a lot of people would say a lot of the Pisces they know are kind of only half here. They're like off somewhere else most of the time. I get that is definitely I, true. I mean, that's where we get the flakiness and the vagueness. Right? Yeah, and the there's a yeah there's a there's a certain like half evaporated quality. <laughs> <laughs> like the heat of Jupiter is somehow like lifting. Yeah, or something. which is in some ways can be a defense mechanism is to just not be fully. <clears throat> You to have a, a you know a piece of yourself that's just somewhere else, um, but yeah, I mean, Pisces are not, as some authors say, a combination of the rest of the signs. But the the sign that it is does love to embrace contradictions, and so you know, yeah. I, I think a lot of Pisces people are harder hard to pin down, and that's um, that goes for their own experience of themselves. 
Yeah, I mean, and I always think of the slippery fish energy. I mean, if you've ever gone fishing, my dad, there we go. My dad always used to like take my brothers fishing and they'd come home and fish are very slippery. Um, and so uh, you try and hold on to that. And I think with Pisces, it's like it is trying to hold on to something that is hard to put your hands around, basically. It's like trying to hold water in your hand. You can't really keep a hold of it. It's going to yeah, that's fall. Right. That's great imagery. Yeah, that's a good one. And that's why you need a special, you know, that's why tridents or fishing spears have like, you know, three up to seven tines because you got to, you got to, you yes. got to fork them. You can't just, you know, stab them uh, with a, with a single point. Well, yeah. And a fish hook is a, it's a, but it's a lethal weapon because it's got that little extra bit on it. So once it goes in, you can't take it. It, it does not have a, like, you can't just back up and take it out. It won't right, you got to hold it. And so, I would say that that also, you know, Pis- a lot of Pisces are interested in like what's deep and mysterious. And it's kind of like Scorpio in that sense that there's like, Ooh, what's at the bottom of the ocean? Scorpio is more like what's under your house, motherfucker. Right. But like, Pisces wants to know what's uh, what's you know what's up there in the in the the vast deeps of space. What's under the ocean? Uh, what's deep inside my psyche? And that you need you know uh, if you're in that kind of terrain, you do need specialized tools to hook and hold what are inherently slippery truths. Yes, very ephemeral type things. It's the other side of the the big picture thing that we saw we first encountered in Sagittarius, but here it's almost taken to another level in Pisces. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I do think, you know, the internal external is appropriate that in Sag we're kind of looking at the whole world out here, but in Pisces we're looking at the interiority. We're looking at if you like those ephemeral things. We're not looking at our actual organs. We did that in Virgo, but in Pisces we're looking at like the unseen, the the feeling, the ideas, the sensing, the intuitive, like it's those um, it, completely intangible things because I think that's part of what you know. You can't hold on to that slippery fish. It's it's intangible. It's it's not meant to be held on to. That makes sense. It's like a you feel it go by or you sense it, but it's it's and then it's gone and you you're trying to figure it out from whatever you can recollect. Yeah, you need you need a net. <laughs> you need a net. Yeah, at the very least. Well, and so, you know, <laughs> I think some least. of our difficulty with, or not our difficulty with describe, but just, you know, it, it, I think we've we've made um, indirectly an excellent case as to why Mercury has a hard time in Pisces. Austin, I was just thinking that. I'm like, this is why it's hard to describe Pisces because it's not a land of words. Well, yeah, when you grab it, you know, you, you grab the water and then you're like, I, I got it. And then the water's somewhere else because you tried to get it. Yeah. Um, but Pisces, yes. I think I used the keyword uh, squishy on a recent episode that people liked or <laughs> laughed true. at. But it's uh, it is like the softest of all the signs. If I were to try to find a keyword, I feel like the the softness is relevant based on the element involved, the the cut, the mutable quality, and then the fact that we do have Venus and Jupiter, which are both mm-hmm. moist planets. So so we just keep getting more and more moisture in here. So there is a softness to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, so you're going to say, uh, oh, well, and then we should talk about, you know, notorious Pisces flakiness. It's a Let's thing. Let's do that. Yeah. It totally exists. It's hard um, having a lot of Saturn placements and like Capricorn and stuff like that. I find it hard sometimes while I have a lot of interactions um, with Pisces, sometimes 
it can be frustrating the um yeah the mutableness the sometimes there can be a perception of like a lack of re- reliability or lack of sticking to like schedules cuz that's like a structure thing and structure sometimes is not a pisces type thing i think you can make a hard statement there that structure is not a pisces thing ever okay <laughs> chris is just trying not to uh I know yeah, you're trying to be very diplomatic, being... but I'll come in, you know, from a it takes one to know one perspective. I feel like I can speak for my. Oh tribe. God! And mm-hmm. I mean, um, and you and I both have Saturn in Virgo staring down the barrel at us. And I. But honestly, without that, that's, Austin, what, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I be, imagine like yeah. me without that. I'm like, how would I get anything done? It's hard enough as it is. Like, oh. yeah. <laughs> It, it is. And my husband will say, what have you done today? And I'll, I'll say, well, I've had three or four clients, which is a full day for an astrologer. And he'll laugh at me. He goes, so you worked for four hours today. <laughs> and I'll be like, well, no, there's more than that. But, you know, there's a, just a different um, well, sort of perspective. Obviously, you have four clients. You're doing more than four hours of work. Yeah, but well, he likes to tease. It's, as, it's as better than me. I'll be like, I had three or well, four good ideas. Well, I don't have the three. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we're both Pisces, Austin, but we're different kinds of Pisces, and your brain is oh, phenomenal. I, I phenomenal. think your your brain um, is undersung, Kelly. <laughs> it's just hard for me to get the w- damn words out. Like you have a much better Mercury. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's 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 actually uh, it's usually it's, it's not usually mute, a huge struggle for me. It's just Mercury's in my tenth, and that's my calling or whatever. But um, yeah, that's actually so we a good get to point. see the best of your Mercury, I guess. Sorry, Chris. aside from like we've talked about sort of like Libra and maybe even Taurus to a lesser extent, some of the Venus stuff and um, the idea of like poetry or musical music. I don't know if you would necessarily jump to Pisces for music, but there's something about like a sort of poetry. Firm, yes, P- poetry and music, hundred percent. Yeah. Right, because it's like an aesthetic appreciation for something. Almost like transcendent that goes beyond words, due to the ability to appreciate on appreciate it on an almost like emotional level. Um, yeah, there's something there that's sort of. Are you talking about music right now or poetry? I mean, I feel like equally well, both could apply, but I know, just yeah, wasn't sure. Either which one, which you one? know, they're, they're, those are uh, how should we say both very evocative media mediums. You know, if we look mm-hmm. back yeah. to the roots of music and poetry, then we're we're looking at people doing. Mm, you know, ritual, right? Yes. For practical or transcendent purpose, or a mixture of the two, and you you invoke the the you evoke the experience of the invisible using poetry, using you know lyrical language, using sound, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're um they're religious technologies or spiritual technologies or magical technologies. Completely, and I think mu- one of the, the the magical things music does is it moves our mood. Music can motivate you; it can help you cry if you need to, like, hello, go and listen to the soundtrack of A Star Is Born if you want to cry. But you can put on like a really great pop song, or I mean, my friend Cassandra that you guys know would put on some heavy metal rock that I wouldn't be able to listen to. But you know, m- music is very personal, but it's incredibly evocative. So I I think I, I would give an absolute firm yes on the music. And it's also the exaltation sign of yeah. Venus. So we're going to have some of these artistic expressions that are not just beautiful, but they're evoking emotion and feeling. 
And poetry does that as well. It's also a use of language that is not necessarily conforming to the normal structures and rules of language. It is literally a free form use of words to paint pictures or ideas that is is more flowing. Even if it's like a sonnet and or it's a haiku and there are specific rules, it's still incredibly creative, if you like, compared to writing a structured essay or doing a dissertation. Yeah, it's not right. it's not a laundry That's- list. No. Something that, that can be appreciated on an emotional level, even if you can't articulate why specifically that is. Yes. And that's, I think, why things like music and poetry are so personal, because it's kind of beyond the rational part of ourselves. Um, you either kind of like it or you don't like it. And that's a very instinctive kind of place to operate from. Mm-hmm. Right. Nice. Yeah. I laughed at the laund- when you said laundry list, Austin. Um So my husband and I take turns each week to write out the shopping list and he's got a bit of Scorpio, a bit of Virgo. So his list is like when we're in the produce section of the supermarket, we're going to buy these things. And then when we're in the dry goods section, we're going to buy these things. And then when I write the list, I fill up every single available piece of white space on the page and some words are sideways and some are around this way and something that's in the same section of the store. We've got one word up here. And like, and when I do the shopping, we sometimes have to go around the store a couple of times because the list is, and his is like, we go in and we go from A to B and mine is like, we're going to go here. Oh, I forgot this one thing. Let's go back and let's get this. So you get the that's, vibe of um, the circular musical sort of poetry approach. All, to um, I'm in the same boat, which makes sense because we're talking about the ocean. Um, so when I write lists, I I come up with like fun new ways to spell or refer to things every time. <laughs> and so like sometimes I, and especially Kate, will look at a list that I wrote and like what are... I don't know, shilbaz. What is that? You know, it's like I. <laughs> so you don't even use. Well, I'll like words. abbreviate and put the words together in a way that's like fun and creative and entertains me while I'm writing the list. Oh my god, this is fantastic! It's really been entertaining, to, amusing to me seeing that your phrase, which I swear I heard you utter like ten years ago for Jupiter, your your nickname for Jupiter is like caught on on social media recently, oh. uh, Austin. Uh, I think you called it Jupiter. No, that was Kate. Uh, was, Jupe, Jupe. That was Kate. That was Kate's keyword. Yeah, it was keyword? when you met okay. Kate at Project Hindsight in like 2007. She referred to it. Yeah, she. Yeah, Jupe Jupe. We, and we yeah, all yeah. started using that um, around the house. We were looking, you know, where Jupe Jupe was in someone's chart. <laughs> I love that, and it is definitely it's a social media phenomenon. In the last 24 hours, I'm like, oh, there's a new phrase for Jupiter. <laughs> Yeah, I've been, it's been very popular. Yeah. Uh, but that's that is a Piscean approach well, to and- language is to make up your own words. I even now, like, well, not now, but I used to call sweeping the floor brooming right. as a child, <laughs> and brooming the floor. And is it coat hanger or hanger coat? It's coat hanger. Coat hanger. And then I always called it a hanger coat. <laughs> I still to this day can't remember exactly. But it's that idea of you're not conforming to the rules of language. You're getting creative. Yes, they're with it. fluid. They're very fluid. fluid. Well, we could just move these pieces as long around. As it conveys meaning. You know, as long as the, the point comes across. And I mean, sometimes it doesn't and there is a failure. So that, that happens too. Right. And so uh, at the beginning, one of you said that um, water, when it doesn't have any boundaries, it's kind of like the ocean. And like the ocean is probably the best analogy. Is, is that our best analogy for what Pisces is as a water sign? Mutable water without boundaries like the ocean. Yeah, I think in terms of naturalistic well, 
water bodies of water. Right. Well, yeah, the ocean, I often think of like a little stream, which kind of meanders. And, and I often, what I often say about Pisces is it is looking for the path of least resistance. It's kind of that more gentle flowing water. It's not cardinal, which is kind of water that might be gushing or with a purpose. It's not the Scorpio that's got a specific purpose. Like, you know, the river is going from A to B. The Pisces water is... It doesn't know where it's going, I don't think. But I think the other thing with the Pisces style of water, if you like, is it's what Austin alluded to about the drops going into the ocean, that you can't really pull one piece out. It kind of, it all goes together or it doesn't go yeah. at all. Once you, yeah, once you put that drop in, you're not getting it back. No. And I don't actually, I think in the, the point of Pisces, you can't actually pull really, I mean, I know you can cup your hand or whatever and you can scoop up ocean water in a glass, but I think the key symbolically is that you can't really separate it. There is too much cohesion here in this particular water sign. Okay. I have to uh, report the Pisces synchronicity that just happened. I thought I usually close Skype down, but I just got a message from a friend saying that he just spent, he just bought 10 cases of wine. <laughs> yes. And that's actually one thing we haven't talked about, Pisces, where they do like their um, sweet indulgences and they do happily have no boundaries in that department either. Right. Well, and sometimes that can, in the extreme sense, can be like escapism as a sort of uh, tendency as well, uh, which can sometimes happen through substances or through other things that allow for that allow definitely for that. happens drugs and alcohol and then certain types of foods things like sugars anything that will give you a little bit of an altered mental state because we don't have any earth here we don't have any mercury we've got no saturn sometimes all of those real deadliney specific things just get a bit overwhelming yeah no yeah I and this longing to not have the boundaries and to escape the boundaries or the things that are keeping you tied down in some sense and and to you know go off and like float somewhere in in a place that is not holding you back in some way and the the sort of desire or longingness for that absolutely you know pisces escapism is yeah. real um although i will add to that there was a quote by oh it was a science, female science fiction author whose name's escaping me ha huh? um but the quote was basically <laughs> she was critiquing people's critique of escapism She's like, is, to escape means to move towards a state of freedom. She's like, is that yes. really a pathological desire for people? Mm. Interesting. And free, free, yeah, freedom is a core freedom, Jupiter signification. Hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. And Chloe. I do think in Pisces, there is that sense of not wanting to be bound by anything, as we've talked about with our water analogies, which means things like time, things like having a physical body. These things are binding. These are Saturn things and they're very binding and then they're very grounding, but they're heavy. Right. And I think in Pisces, because it's a Jupiter sign, it is looking to be, as you said, Austin, freed from that or liberated from that to flow without being bound down. And that's not how real life works, which is why depending on placements of, of Pisces in your chart, whether it's an angular or whatever planets you've got, that can be a real struggle. Liberation. That was a good keyword you just used. Yeah. I mean, the transcendence piece is there. I think the desire to feel connected, not just with other people, but, but this is Jupiter's water sign. So we want to feel connected to something that has that wisdom component to all that kind of higher divine. Yeah. I piece. think of Pisces uh, as, as well as the other water signs, but I would say more so Pisces is very, uh, as very soul oriented. 
And I, I wouldn't say that the soul is a transcendent thing, but it's sort of the deepest, it's like as far down as you can go into the individual before to the point where it interfaces with what's transpersonal but is still personal i feel like that's mm. a very pisces place though that's a that's an important depth and pisces people when they're not either at peace within their soul or their soul's not at peace with their life when there's that sort of friction between the visible and the invisible there's a you know a very special pisces a patented Pisces form of misery that comes about from that. I mean, is so 100%. soulful, like soulful, then a good keyword for Pisces? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, it's water and it's Jupiter. It's uh, that feels like a really appropriate combination. Some of the synonyms um, for uh, soulful are emotional, deep, profound, heartfelt, sincere, etc. Yeah. Um, and this is. I mean, it's just reminded me that when I was at Sota this year, um, I met a gentleman who was obviously also there who has this massive Pisces um, stellium in his chart. And I won't really sort of say exactly what it is because I don't want to be divulging things, but um, he's, he's an artist and he said, the only thing I can paint is waves. And his waves are phenomenal. Like he's on Instagram, his artwork's on Instagram. It, it, I mean, I, I'm an ocean girl. I grew up on islands in the Pacific because that's what Australia is, but I also lived in Fiji. Um, and his waves are like the most realistic. You, you can almost reach out and touch them. They've got that kind of evocative thing in there. Um, and that was probably not actually related to what you guys were just talking about. But it just I mean, the guy, me. you know, a guy who has a bunch of planets in Pisces who only paints waves is a pretty good, <laughs> you know. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's on topic, topic or on theme at least. Is he also an alcoholic? Because then, you know. <laughs> no, he's see, he, well, I mean, look, I didn't spend that much time with him, but he, he seemed quite functional. Um, and I, that's, it's the funny thing, like when you talk about the, the fish with the going in different directions tied together, I often find and this is, I, I appreciate that there's a lot more to addiction than what I'm about to say, um, that sometimes in some iterations of, of Pisces placements, when there is a little bit of drug and alcohol stuff going on, not necessarily in like serious addiction, but when it's maybe just a little more than could be considered functional, um, there's often a craving for that spiritual togetherness or that um, soulful fullness that is missing and the drugs and alcohol become these escapist behaviors to kind of dull that emptiness at that very soulful spiritual level. Um, and so the filling up, you know, there are different ways to fill up basically some that are more productive and yeah, some that definitely. are less. Right. But there's a tendency for Pisces to gravitate towards finding something to fulfill that, whatever it is. Well, yes, well, And I would exactly. also say that um, even if, you know, the soul is relatively in order and things are all right down there, um, there's also just like a kind of a great love of overdoing it. Well, yeah. Hey, Venus, Jupiter, more, more, like, more. You know, I've, um, I, I, I don't think I've, I could say I've ever struggled with addiction, but I've definitely been like, dude, you're overdoing it. And it's not like, oh, it's yes. to kill the pain. I'm like, no, it would be more fun if I had another drink. Right. And yeah. so, you know, you can still struggle with like, you know, drinking too much or, drinking too much coffee, drinking too much, you know, alcohol, whatever, whatever, without having to necessarily place yourself in that more intense category. You can be like, yeah, I, I tend to overdo it. I like to overdo it. Right. Which is very Jupiter, yes, and I right? Think that's 
And Sagas overdo it too, totally. but in a different way. Pisces likes to yeah. take in things. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so I just found the... Um, uh, so it's George H. Lewis is his Instagram handle, the artist, and his his... I mean, I feel like I have to pay homage to him. I know we've looked at charts of different people and you've probably got some great ones, Chris, but these waves are like nothing I've ever seen before out of being in the ocean with the waves, basically. So it's Instagram.com slash George H. Lewis. Yes. Got it. Yeah, those are some very yeah. impressive waves. Yeah, they really, right? they really are. I was like, if anybody needs Neptune in Pisces or just needs to feel Pisces, you can uh, check out his Instagram. Well, it's that sense of realism and it's conveying realism even though it's something where it's actually just a two-dimensional it's an image it's being painted on a flat surface but it looks as if it's real yeah and that speaks into you know the echoes and the hints you know that in pisces it's not a photograph necessarily it's that we're kind of capturing the feeling or the essence of something right but that but it's an element that's almost hard to articulate because if you tried to like write down exactly how to do it, it would be difficult. There's some other element there that's, um, yeah, hard. The other, yeah, the other. It's it's this, it, and this is what you stuff, struggle with in Pisces is putting into words. Well, and that's when well, you right. can. They just have to be poetic words. Yes. And and looking at this, this makes me circle around to a point that I was almost going to make earlier. But can we talk about how, like, I can understand through the idea of affinity why modern astrologers would get really hung up on tying Neptune to Pisces because there are overlaps there between some of the things that we're talking about. And even if we've demonstrated, I think pretty conclusively at this point, that we can come to a lot of Jupiter or Pisces significations through these other means of it being a mutable water feminine sign that's ruled by Jupiter, you can still understand why they would have said that Pisces, that that Neptune has, as even mythologically, the god of the sea, has some um, similarities to Pisces, even if that's not an interpretive framework that we're using, or even if we think that rulership is based on a different symmetrical framework based on you know the the luminaries being assigned to whatever Cancer and Scorpio, and then the other planets flanking out. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that here at the end of this whole discussion. Yeah, I mean, it is a water sign. And, you know, if you bring in an archetype or a god that is linked to the ocean, there's definitely going to be some crossover. What I would say, yeah, that's a good, clear point, Kelly. Um, what I was going to say <laughs> is that um, astrologically speaking, um, Jupiter, you know, is big, expansive, can do watery, but Jupiter cares about coherence. Whereas Neptune mm. is dissolution and absorption without a real limit. Like you don't have, like with Jupiter, you have a vessel. And so, yeah, I put a bunch of weird stuff in this stew, but it's all going to cook together. Whereas like there's no container with Neptune. Um, and so you, you just kind of keep getting further and further out in a way that you don't get with a, the Jupiterian frame on Pisces. And despite everything that we've we've said... Um, there are reams of Pisces who are extremely, you know, imaginative, but in a way that's successful in the real world people like the Pisces thing doesn't just work for, for, you know, for poets. Um, yeah. Case in point, Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's, you know, he's like, 
not saying we agree with his views or anything, but he's been an exceptionally successful. Yes, he's like, I understand the toxic fantasies that take seed in this culture, and I will harvest them, <laughs> repackage them, and sell them back to people. That, that you know, the, a lot of this Pisces, you know, kind of mm, psyche smarts um, is super useful. Um, and it, it, it works better in practice than you would think. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. Jupiter. <laughs> then it sounds like it's Jupiter. You know, basically. Jupiter lights, Jupiter's all about success, understand and succeed. Um, and so, mm. yeah. It, and, and so another thing is that Pisces people in general, it, like they're, they're, when I remember reading all of these descriptions that were based on the idea that Neptune world Pisces, and it was all about like how, um, weak and without will Pisces people are. And, you know, I, that didn't work for me, but I have Mars in Pisces. Right. But I've met, you know, a bajillion other people with strong planets in Pisces and that like weak willlessness thing, like that floppy noodle, um, portrait is not accurate at all. They might be subtle and squishy. Um, but there's, there, there's not, um, there's not the like, that's cool, I'll just melt into a pile of goo. Whereas if I believed Linda Goodman, that's what I would expect from Pisces, and I'd be very disappointed when I met them. Right. Well, I think, I mean, the amount of times that people will say something like that to me, or you might have heard this too, Austin, like I think if you've got any bit of Pisces in your chart and you're a functional human being, it seems to surprise people to a certain extent um, because of the, if you like, the pop um, portrayal of Pisces as just being um, either weak-willed or completely a flake. There is uh, maybe a bit more of a driving force inside them than people give them yeah. credit for. Yeah. A uh, quick, just one example, Sigmund Freud, a famous example of Jupiter and Pisces uh, mm-hmm. as the, you know, sort of founder of the, the idea or initial pioneer of the theory of the unconscious as a sort of developmental model in modern psychology and psychoanalysis yeah it's a good example of you know discovering the ocean and then the ocean yeah, and he's within like, and then you know his scorpio and taurus planets looked at it and we're like that ocean's full of sex but that was uh <laughs> right well he did have scorpio rising yeah so. well i mean you know there's there's you know there is sex in that ocean it is a venus you know venus exaltation sign it is but venus. there's other stuff too yes freud freud you dirty yes. dreamer <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. All right. Well, we will some one of these days I want to circle back around to the the modern and traditional rulership discussion, but I'm glad that we were able to create a, a strong foundation here by primarily approaching this from from the perspective that astrologers would have for most of the past 2000 years of just looking at those core qualities of the signs in terms of um, you know, gender, uh, modality, element and traditional planetary ruler. I have. Can I mention one Pisces example? Sure. Um, Anae Nin. Do you guys know who that is? Oh, Anais um, Nin. Could you? Yeah, Anais yeah, Nin. Sorry, a, yeah. She's a Pisces favorite. I was actually going to mention her earlier. Yeah, Sun, Jupiter, Venus in Pisces. Um, I don't know how we describe her to our audience. Um, how we- she's an author, and she wrote a lot about romance and sex. I guess erotic and, literature. And there's a very strong domain like, mythic soulful quality to her romance and sex stuff too yeah she was so she definitely has the the pisces vibes or, or like the you know the jupiter she because she does have jupiter and venus in yeah, pisces, and famously so. linked to uh henry miller who's another 
yes. early 20th century. Amazing yeah. playwright. So, sorry, Chris, you were summing up. And as true mutables, we did not respect the boundaries. Yeah. It must be very difficult for you a lot of the time. <laughs> no, no. Um, are there any other, I mean, are there any other major Pisces examples that you guys want to want to mention that you can think of offhand? I'm trying to like look through my list really quickly just to make sure there's not any that I meant to mention. I mean, the f- most famous like Pisces example, of course, I use this as like a like trivia anecdote sometimes, but um, Kurt Cobain referred to himself in his suicide note, sadly, as a sad little Pisces. Um, it happens. So that was an example. He was a Sun-Saturn conjunction in Pisces, uh, actually. Yeah, that's that's more of a different. It's very sad. Let's see, George Washington. Yeah, do you guys was have a, a positive? George Who? Washington. Okay. Um, the first president of the United States of America. Um, let's see. Uh, Flavor Flav is a Pisces. Uh, Billy Corgan, or these are Sun and Pisces. Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, who now owns a professional wrestling organization, as uh, a Sun and right. Pisces. Same, um, I think, uh, same generation, maybe even same year as Kurt Cobain. Um, yeah, he was born within a month of Kurt okay. Cobain. Uh, let's see what other. Uh, a famous astrologer is a good one. Richard Tarnas is a famous Sun in Pisces in the tenth house. And- and is he's he? a he's a Saturn in Virgo, isn't oh, he? Like yes. Kelly and I. Yeah, Saturn at seventeen okay. Virgo, Gemini rising, and Mercury. He has this great packed ninth whole sign house, and even quad- so, does he have a Moon Neptune opposition then? Yeah, it's within I don't okay. know like six mm, degrees. I got one of those. The Moon in Aries. Yeah. I forgot that he, I forgot that he was a Pisces. Um, oh, I keep losing this example. Elizabeth yeah, Taylor a good one. is a Pisces. Mm. I'm in love with everybody. I want to get married to everybody. Um, I, the only reason I remember her, well, she's just a Pisces. Right. Um, yeah. All right. I think who, that who might else? be it then. Yeah. There's a, Maybe there's just there's some a whole example. ocean of them out there. Right. I mean, Einstein, Einstein, of course, was another yeah, and he's, son in he, Pisces. He's That's pretty good true. for like Pisces stereotypes. Right. right. They're like, I am a genius who forgets about pants. Yeah, <laughs> I've come up with a theory of relativity, but I'm not sure what to do with these things that have yeah. a zipper on um, them. Yeah, that's that's pretty like file under Pisces, <laughs> definitely. And then finally, Alexander Graham Bell was, it, oh, if this yes. is correct, he was a Pisces rising with Sun, Saturn, and Mercury in mm. Pisces. His chart, I've used his chart to teach really? off before. He's amazing. Well, because he has, um. I think he has the. He's born just around a full moon, but the sun and moon are both ar- above the just above the horizon. So he's got sort of that maximum celestial light, mm-hmm. and because he basically developed the telephone, and he also um, did a lot of work. What a lot of people don't know about him is that he actually did a lot of work creating devices to help people who were physically impaired communicate. Mm. So people that were deaf or that were mute, um, he was because his wife and his child, I think, had disabilities along those lines. And so part of the reason the telephone came about was he was actually trying to make devices to help people with some limitations express themselves and communicate. That makes sense. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think brilliant. the moon applies to a tight opposition to Mercury in the chart. Um, so anyway, that's that's I forgot he was a Pisces too. So he's a very productive Pisces. Bit mad though as well. Like he moved from Scotland to live off some island off Canada, and uh, 
had patents on so many things. So he was a bit of a mad hatter inventor himself. Right. He's a Pisces rising with that Jupiter is in in Gemini, oh, and then the Moon Gemini. is in Virgo. So he's got those that some heavy Mercury, Gemini, Virgo stuff going on, and then it gets tied back into the Pisces stuff. Makes sense. Yeah. Very yeah, Pisces visual. is good for imagination. Yes. And that's a good example yes, also to close down with just how the I've I've primarily when I've brought up examples, I've often looked at the ascendant being there, but then the ascendant gets modified by the sign that the ruler is in. Yeah. So he's a great example of Pisces rising and a bunch of planets in Pisces, but then Jupiter is modifying that by being placed in Gemini itself. Yeah. Well, if we ever want to do a 30-hour podcast, we can go through the signs again with the rulers in all 12 signs. Right. All all of the manifestations. One of these days. Yes. One of these days. uh, Well, we could break it into chunks. We could maybe do three signs at a time, and that could be our 2019 project because it would probably take us that long to do all the recording. Oh, um, just one more Pisces. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev. Pretty good at oh, you know yes. talking about Pisces like seeking harmony and to try to get rid of um, you know, to try to balance or harmonize polarities um, and you know if any one person was responsible for the end of the Cold War it was probably him oh and Johnny Cash is another good one oh yes how could we forget him yes he's got some of the classic I think he's a Scorpio moon yep. or he's got he's a, couple got, he's a in Sun Scorpio. Mars and Pisces uh, Taurus moon but I Scor- Scorpio Taurus something. moon. Scorpio, he does have. I'm sure there's something in Scorpio there, um, but yeah, he's definitely. I mean, he. I was think too, like he just rec- he recorded his first album in a prison. Um, he had his own issues with addiction, but he was also this wonderful musical talent. So you sort of get both both ends of the fish. Yeah, he's a he's like, a good Pisces cliche, and he also was a very spiritual yeah. man. One of the last things he put out yeah. was like him reading the entire Bible. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, so, uh, I'm going to have to. Obviously, exercise. Austin yeah, yeah. and I can keep going. Yeah. You better I'm shut have us to down. I'm going to exercise here and say it's been, <laughs> we're at about three and a half hours. So I think we're going to have to cut it off. Um, I can't believe we did it. Thank you guys so much for joining me for this. We've completed our two part series on this, the meanings of the signs of the zodiac. Uh, I feel like we deserve a round of applause, but sadly, we don't have a live audience. There's no uh, one here I'll, to I'll give us that. I'll settle for a drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's definitely drink time, Friday night. No, that was really fun. Thank you for having me and us, Chris. That was great and always so good yeah, to chat great. with you guys. Good. Yeah, this was awesome. And um, both of you, so both of you teach sort of intro to astrology courses as well as intermediate and advanced courses where you you actually go into and you deal with some of this stuff more in depth. Um, Kelly, what's your what's your main like astrology course if people want to learn more about your approach to some of this? Yeah, absolutely. The best one to start with if you're completely new is my Practical Astrology Beginners Class, which is a six-week online program. If you uh, feel like you've got the basics down pat or you want to know what you would do after that, then I have a series of chart interpretation classes, uh, three modules, each with four classes in them that'll take you through planets, chart interpretation aspects, a lot of what we were kind of touching on tonight. And obviously, it's a bit more than three hours um, even though we did give it a good treatment today. So they're all on my website, kellysastrology.com, under the study tab. Brilliant. And I'll put a, a link to that in the description page for this episode on the astrologypodcast.com. And then Austin, what's your main sort of intro to astrology course that would be good after people have listened oh, to this? The Fundamentals of Astrology course, 
which is cut up into seven month-long units, and the second month-long unit is on the signs. And so you can buy the whole thing, or you can just get the you know you can just get the the zodiac month. It's um, available in little modular chunks of four weeks each. Brilliant. All right, and people can find that on your website, which is austincopic.com, yep. right? Cool. And as for myself, my main course for intro, intermediate, and advanced stuff is all packed into my Hellenistic astrology course, where I deal with the foundations of Western astrology and teach take people from the basics all the way through intermediate and advanced concepts. And that is available at theastrologyschool.com. All right, guys, we did it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back again next week for the forecast for December. And then we're getting ready pretty soon here to do our, our yearly forecast for 2019 before too long as well. So hope, um, I guess we'll hope you like hearing soon. us talk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hours and hours ahead. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thanks everyone. Thanks to all the, the patrons and all the people that support and listen to the podcast. We appreciate it. And uh, you guys make this make this happen. So that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.